It's a great honor to have you on, mate. Um, my last endeavor was with uh, Nick's Bitcoin dev. Uh, I think you might have met him face to face and know his real name because, uh, uh, yeah, he spoke highly of you. And, uh, well, you know, when I was doing editing of the video, I sort of like followed up. You know, you, you, hear, you hear these sort of like loose connections during the editing process and, you're like, and you think, oh, yeah, you know, let me research that. And I did a bit of a research on you and I thought, oh, this is an interesting fellow. He sounds like a, he sounds just the sort of person I would like to sit down and have a beer with, you know. <laughs> How are you? Well, fantastic. And yes, let's do that. Let's sit down and have a great conversation. Now, um, I, I actually listened to the whole Nick's Bitcoin uh, interview as soon as you, as you dropped it. Uh, just, you know, because that guy really has some smart things to say. Uh, and you are one of the rare people who actually got him on record. <laughs> so so that's nice. Um, no, but but definitely, man, there's there's a lot of things to talk about, I think, um, because even though I have not much dabbled with NixOS, and uh, it seems that this is definitely one of one of your strong suits, um, like uh, the, the way that you did the interview uh, and the way that you asked the question engaged in a long but very dense and like never a down drop uh, in the conversation. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Well, uh, with that, I'm honored. I'm honored about that. Thank you very much. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think maybe I. I... I was a little worried I might lose a lot of people, but then at the same time, it's like, fuck it. <laughs> this is interesting to me. <laughs> I want I want to get to the nitty gritty. And and I thought, and I, I after listening to a couple of your your um, conversations and whatnot, I thought, oh, okay, this th here's another fellow I can sort of you know really <laughs> get into quite a dense conversation with. So what what's your story? I mean. I, I think it sounds like I think you've got an economics background, but now you've gone into full. Like yeah, full full on libertarian, and and it's almost like you you've you you you're going into teaching too, using that lovely smooth chocolatey voice of yours. Well, you see, I think that they're both you and I have something good for that, right? A, a good voice, and especially the good microphone, right? That helps a lot. That helps it really a does. Lot. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's uh, spot on. My background is in economics. Um, like from a rather young age, I wanted to get more money to buy stuff that I wanted. And, uh -huh. uh, and so I got, had to figure out how to do that and how to convince other people to help me. And then the, the way that I found out was just, well, solve a problem for them. And then they give you the stuff that you want. <laughs> and and uh, that kind of entrepreneurial mindset was, was really early in my childhood and helped me a lot, right? And Ultimately, I wanted to find out like the theory of, of entrepreneurship and how just to be a better businessman, to provide better services to my customers. Right? Um, and that is naturally the study of economics, right? So at first, since I didn't teach it in school, uh, I, I kind of looked at books and you know lectures and things online um, to uh, about economics. And of course, it was the mainstream macroeconomic Keynesian bullshit. Yes. Uh, that, that, I mean, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating rabbit hole. Um, it's, it's a model that in and of itself brings really interesting conclusions and really like spot on observations. Uh, I just always had the quarrel with the entire foundation of the model. 
um, uh, like the entire assumptions, the starting points, and even the methodology is just so useless, frankly useless. And if your axioms are wrong, then any conclusion you build on top will be wrong. <laughs> so as no matter how logically sound you are inside that model, you will be flawed always. Right? Um, and this led me down then to further find other schools of thoughts, especially Austrian economics. economics. That's it. Uh, <laughs> I, I finally read Hayek and Mises and ultimately Rothbard. Um, and I mean, Mises taught me the, like the love of praxeo uh, the love of praxeology and how to like think uh, as an economist. That was something that I, I credit Ludwig so much with. But then Rothbard comes along and I read For a New Liberty and the guy just kicks me in my face right, and provides me the, the most thorough, the most logically consistent and dense articulation of what it means to be a free man in just this tiny book. And I read it twice in one session, like throughout the entire night, because I could not stop reading it because it was just such a beautiful articulation of what I knew to be true in my heart. Right? Mm -hmm will finally put into words that are unrefutable. Uh, and that, that was really that mind-opening moment that turned me into a full-blown anarchist. So, so Rothbard, what's the name of the book? Because I have not read this. For a New Liberty. Uh, it's a book mm -hmm. on ethics and philosophy. Rothbard was a phenomenal economist. He was an mm -hmm. incredible historian. But one of his amazing contributions were in the realms of ethics and morals. Um, and again, to explain that, starting from the axiom of the entire praxeology, the individual, right? Individual human action. That's what praxeology yes. means, the science yeah. of human action, right? Yeah. Uh, and economics is a sub-branch of that, right? History is a sub-branch of that. Um, but yes, morality is also one, right? So how do moral individuals behave? How ought you to behave, right? Um, and this was very helpful for me to find my value judgments, right? And to find out what is actually important to me. How do I want to live? Which problems do I want to solve? Right? And, and therefore, how should I interact with other individuals to get my problems solved? Right? And, uh, and that really turned me into this natural law moralist, maximalist. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, because it, it looks like you found a sort of a nexus, a sort of cross point between uh, the domain of 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 economics and and cipher and and being a cypherpunk and 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 for me this is this is it's not well nowadays there's nowadays there's more and more of these sorts of individuals but you know like it's not easy finding these sort of individuals so how did how did you come across the the the, the cypherpunk side of things oh I it was a natural follow through wasn't it no, I've, I, I think like the first meaningful interaction that I had with free software in general, which of course is the foundation of cypherpunks, yeah. was when a friend of mine in high school uh, showed me Linux and actually uh, helped me to install a Ubuntu machine. Um, yeah. And like, I, for a while, I was just dabbling around it and still using my Windows computer to browse on how to use Linux. <laughs> um, and then on my laptop was like trying out how to navigate, you know, the terminal and things, basics. Because again, yeah. I'm not a developer, still not to this day. Um, uh, so I just like to use computers and software, right? Um, but yeah, that, that just helped me more and more. And it turned me, I, I stepped away from Windows like half a year or a year after. Because okay. I was like, yeah, this is so much better. This is so much better. And then not just the usability of it, but also the philosophy of it, right? And this is what really, really brought me into it. Um, and 
I think fundamentally it's like that free software understands economics. Like proprietary software is illogical in economics, right? And I see that because we're talking about scarcity here, right? Mm. So there are scarce goods and there are non-scarce goods. And that's very, very important. The science of economics focuses uh, on scarce goods, right? So scarce uh, goods that are exclusive, where mm. either one party or the other party can have it, but at no time can both of them enjoy the, the fruits of this good, right? whatever it is. So if you have a, a tree, right? either Alice can cut it down to build a house, right? or Bob can cut it down to build a boat. Right? Mm. But there's a potential conflict of who's actually going to cut the tree. Right? Is it Alice or Bob? And now how do these two individuals handle this conflict? Right? How do they mitigate this uneasiness and this uncertainty of being at war, basically? Right? How do you bring peace? Um, and economics says that these scarce goods can only be like properly owned peacefully in, in uh, two ways. Like either you're the first one to take this abundant scarce resource, right, just one random tree in the forest and you cut it down, right? As soon as you're the first to take it, it's yours. Right? Finders keepers. Exactly, exactly, right? That's that's very logical. I mean, if nobody else has a claim to it, right? If it's just lying around there, sure, use it, right? Um, and then the other thing is in a voluntary contract. So if Alice did cut down the tree, right? Uh, maybe prepared it into beautiful lumber, right? Because she's a lumberjack. Uh, then Bob can ask her, hey, Alice, I would love to have uh, that beautiful piece of lumber. Uh, what do you want in exchange for that, right? How can I make you happy so that you will sacrifice the use of this scarce good, right? Because as soon as Alice gives the scarce goods to Bob, she no longer has it, right? So, so she has a lot of interesting things that she could do with this house, right? Uh, with this log, she could build her house or build a cabin or, I don't know, build a wagon or whatever, right? Many potential opportunity costs that she has if she would actually give away that good to Bob. Um, and so private property rights are a solution to the problem of that scarce goods have a conflict over who can use them, right? Property rights, most simple, most elegant solution to the problem. But what about non-scarce goods, right? Because there are goods, right? There are things that are useful that are non-scarce, right? That I can give you without actually sacrificing it myself, right? Like these words that I'm speaking, right? Every word that I say, I mean, it came from me, right? And it's something useful, right? Because you're listening to it right now. Um, but um, the, like, I still retain that information. It's not that I forget it instantly that I speak it. I still have all the words. I still have all the ideas, right? This non-scarce information of cyberspace in my head, basically. So like it's like a Richard Dawkins, like a mimetic uh, transfer of ideas. You know, the ideas can replicate in the same way that software can replica replicate kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. And Ludwig von Mises is so beautiful uh, on the topic of ideas. Like he is, he's an absolute fan and he understands the power of ideas, right? That these non-scarce goods can be shared without needing it to sacrifice. And this means that basically entrepreneurs can, can copy other entrepreneurs in the technology that they use of how to allocate scarce resources, right? So if Bob has this brilliant idea of how to build a, a boat that will actually float, right, and not sink, if he does it with his own wood, right, and Alice sees the technology that he's done, right, he sees how he, how she, how he cut the wood and how he put it together, right, all this information, if Bob shares that, Bob still knows how to build a boat, right, he didn't forget it, but all of a sudden Alice actually gets that idea too, and she can her apply her own scarce resources, her own lumber, right? To cut it in the same way, 
to nail it in the same way and to put it together in the exact same way as Bob did without taking anything away from Bob, right? So mm. the idea of copying ideas, right? The idea, the core ethos of free software is at the heart of the entrepreneurial studies in the praxeological tradition. Mm. Like to copy ideas is essential for the entrepreneur. That's how we solve more complicated problems, right? Yeah. We help each other. And sharing non-scarce goods is incredibly helpful because it means that everyone will have a better technology to fix more complex problems for himself. Right? Yeah. It makes everyone better. Yeah. So I suppose uh, artificial layers of scarcity in the form of a patent system um, really is counterintuitive to this model. Uh, because it, it's almost it's almost sabotaging it's almost sabotaging society uh, as a whole kind of thing some well, some might say uh, might, some might argue otherwise in the form of documenting good ideas in, in the in the in the in the in the history of uh, of humanity well i i think the the goal of intellectual property is completely stupid right in in this praxeological mindset it's just why would you do that yeah. and the thing is it's it's even harmful right it's actually stealing from others. So why, right? So intellectual property claims that somehow, right, you can apply force to someone else uh, if he has taken your intellectual property, if he has copied your ideas, right? Mm. But why is that so stupid? I mean, first of all, he did not take it, right? He did not make you sacrifice in any shape or form. He just, you know, copied the idea. And you yeah. still have it. He didn't take anything. He didn't touch your actual scarce resources. Right? He didn't steal your computer. He didn't steal your lumber. Right? That would be theft, of course. But copying an idea is very much not theft, right? In, in no shape or form. Um, and even worse than that, right? Now he wants to apply this idea to his own scarce resources, right? So Alice sees how Bob actually builds the boat, and now she wants to build a boat herself. Right, so she cuts her own lumber. Right, she uh, the own tree puts it into lumber, puts it all together. Right, um, and all of a sudden, Bob comes and says, "No, no, I had the idea first. Here I come with a mafia of a bunch of thugs with guns to take away your boat because I had the idea of it." Like now, Bob actually stealing the scarce resources of others just because he claims that he magically has the ownership of a non-scarce idea, which again is is just nonsensical. It's it's both ludicrous, right, to to take away the power of of speech and ideas, right? To diminish that is so anti-human. I I mean, it's insane, right? Yeah. And not just does it just break the logical idea of what humans do and how humans interact, it actually steals from others, right? So intellectual yeah. property, such a scam, such a scam, incredibly harmful, or where we could have been if we had lived to the free software ethos for the last thousands of years. <laughs> well, I fully, I fully accept and embrace that idea too. Um, but it, it kind of goes, it goes a little bit deeper than that uh, in the sense that for me, like free speech has to be one of the most important things um, that, that as human beings have ever come up with in the sense, when I mean free speech, I mean a very specific thing in the sense that I, one, an individual can speak truth to power and not have a bullet put in your head kind of thing. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then a more general sort of thing is like, you know, without, without free speech, how are you supposed to learn about something? How are you supposed to muddle your way? For example, now I'm starting to do a little bit of electronics. 
I'm a software guy and I'm doing a little bit of electronics. I'm creating a board where I can, you know, keep my little private key on it. And I'm an absolute idiot with this sort of thing. And I'm asking the most silly sort of questions. And and like if I didn't have, you know, you know, if I didn't have speech that I I, mean, I know it's this this example is quite different, but it's not a very sensitive subject. But if any, if I didn't, if I didn't have the ability to 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 to, to communicate this, how would I improve or up my game? You see what I mean? So it's like, and 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 if you know, it should, in the situation of where there's a, a government or something, uh, did you catch any of that information? It says, <coughs> excuse me, and in in the situation of where there's a government or something, a corrupt government, you know. As in, as in the case with the Soviet Union, where free speech, you know, every the, the, the entire society deteriorates to um, uh, to lies and and deceit in order just to stay alive. Uh, yeah, this 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 kind of thing is is quite dangerous, and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm actually sort of you know, uh, creating a, a new internet protocol where basically you own your own data. Um, and yeah, nobody can nobody can cancel you. Nobody can deplatform you, kind of thing. Yeah, I'm curious yeah, to hear your viewpoint. No, no, absolutely. Like free speech is is essential, and I mean, so many schools of thought teach that. Like you know, the Bible starts with uh, God is the Word, right? And the Word uh -huh. is God. So you know, this is this is like speech is the logos. Right? The Gnostic tradition embraces the logos to its fullest, right? So mm -hmm. there there are so many schools of thought that that understand this and that preach this truth, right? To, to for people to understand and to live by it, right? And again, for me, it's all about uh, well, looking at it from economically speaking. It's all about property rights, right? Um, who owns your body, right? That's the first question, right? And well, if you're a collectivist, you think well, the collective greater good, the social body, uh, is owns you just, and you're just a small cog in the machine, right? Um, yeah, okay, live by that idea of slavery. Good luck. Um, the the <laughs> other alternative is that you do, right? You, the individual, own your own body. Why? Because you were the first one to use it, right? You just kind of woke up in it. <laughs> uh, and, and this bodily vessel in meat space is how you manifest yourself in this meat space reality, right? So who can control your body? You do, right? How do you want to move your body, right? You do. You answer that question. You figure out if you're hungry right? and, and what your body needs to survive and to thrive, right? These are all responsibilities that lay upon the individual. Nobody can. Nobody else can sustain your body. Right? This is something that you have to do with with active and constant change and action and improvements to your situation. Right. Um, so, and of course, speech counts with that. Like, who has the right to speak through your body? Well, you do, of course. Right. So, speech is this powerful thing. How you can express yourself to other individuals. Right. How mm. you can selectively reveal yourself. Right? A private individual speaks. Right? He doesn't just blabber out. He chooses his words and mm. uh, you know what to say and it, in what way to perform it um, with the intent of sharing this knowledge with others, right? with the intent to make a change, to convince others of some opinion right? so that they can apply it in their lives. Um, uh, and this is, again, so fundamentally human. I mean, speech is since forever, right? Even the written language uh, and code is just the latest manifestation of written language. Right? So it's it's an incredibly important part of the human existence. Uh, and if if that is being tyrannized uh, by people who all of a sudden have the authority to say what you speak or what you cannot speak, right, um, is 
it, it just turns you into a slave outright. You no longer have property rights in your own body. You're a slave. That's a, a it's it's a collectivist nightmare. Hmm. Yeah, I think also one other thing is that like you can um, um, as an individual you can take responsibility for your actions, um, as well as get consequences for your actions. But if if you're part of a group behaving as part of a group, how are you going to assign um, you know uh, responsibility to a group? Or you know like if 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 this group has done misdeeds. Given you know, it, given that a society is following something like you know um, private property, obviously there would be punishments involved in this. Actually, I want to go into this. Um, uh, you know, there will be punishments associated with 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 uh, violating those those um, private property things, and you can actually assign those punishments to an individual. But if it's a group, it becomes more difficult. And then I'm going to talk lead into something else after that. But I'm keen to hear your opinion, uh, your your viewpoint on that. Yeah, uh, I mean, ultimately, the the smallest atomic unit is the individual, right? Mm. That's that's like we can't go any smaller than that. Um, so, any social body, uh, like a, a collective of individuals, I mean, of course, do exist, right? Co individuals do collaborate, they do interact. Right? We're not just isolated individuals. So yes, we form a social uh, a social body of action, so to say. Um, but again, like the, it. It does not exist an entity called Apple, right, or an entity called the government, or yeah. uh, this type, right? It's it's just a bunch of individuals doing stuff, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, you you cannot really apply force against this collective entity. You can only apply it against those individuals and their scarce property, right? So yeah, you can go to the management board of Apple and confiscate their bank accounts, right? Yeah, you you can do that, but this doesn't hurt Apple. This hurts like all the individuals that are in there to a greater or lesser extent. Right? Um, so, uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, this, we, we also see this in, in software, right? And um, ultimately, it's, it's just individual contributors who write code, right? And uh, there, there is no, for example, Bitcoin core, you know, person or, or identity. It's just a bunch of individuals who somehow figured out how to work together, right? Uh, and how to solve difficult problems, right? Mm, yeah. So, what's your what's your view? Ta uh, your take on being a, a crypto uh, uh, anarchist? I assume. Um, what's your take on relinquishing levels of freedom so that, for example, a peacekeeping force like the police uh, can step in and uh, ensure. <laughs> with a uh, double quotes, the air quotes ensure peace. Um, yeah, I'm kind of here. I'm kind of keen to hear your your viewpoint on that. I mean, are you okay with like? Would you prefer going into a society where there's basically no police force? Uh, no, uh, because there are thugs out there who want to steal from you. And you know, <laughs> I like my safety in meat space. If you are not free in meat space, if you have constant aggressors running after you with a machete, like. It's kind of stressful, right? You're not going to survive long. So, so yes, physical security essential. I'd say my security in cyberspace, right? Well, how do we deal with it? Um, I've, or then maybe one more overarching question: Like, am I happy to relinquish some control and some responsibilities? Well, yes, absolutely. That's why I'm a capitalist, 
I don't want to solve every problem by myself all the time. I want to thrive in the division of labor of the economy. I want other people to fix my problems, right? Because then I don't have to worry about it. That's why I go to the butcher, right, to get a steak. <laughs> That's so much more convenient. And I don't have to, you know, take on the responsibility of actually raising the animal, feeding it for years, and then butchering it. Right? That's mm. so much more difficult. And I, frankly, I don't want to do it. So the exact same concept applies to, to um, you know, defense. Hire bodyguards. Like, that's it. Done. Right? That's basically all it is. It's just a service being provided. A couple strong men with guns, right, looking out for you. And how are you going to convince them to do that? How do you, uh, like, want to keep them loyal? I mean, first of all, pay them in Bitcoin, right? That, that will be a good incentive <laughs> enough. But then, you know, also, like, make sure that these are actually good people. Like, build a local militia of strong men to defend your property. Yes, absolutely. Do that. Um, and if you cannot do it, well, that's great. Hire someone else. Right? You can provide some other meaningful service to the guy that you just hired to you know, shoot the attackers that come after you. You can provide some service for him, or he is marginally less good at. Right? He's the best warrior, so he should be the warrior. And if you're the best, I don't know, farmer, well, yeah, focus on farming. Right? Um, so you know, the division of labor applies anywhere, anywhere, including the provision of, of security services. Mm. So where, where do you see is our major sort of threats to uh, this freedom of, of, well, loss of individuality, loss of personal freedom? What, what, what's currently your main threats on the horizon? Uh, well, I mean, there are many. <laughs> um, well, the, you know, the sort of like yeah. ones that sort of like keep, kind of keep you awake at night. I mean, you know, philosophically, um, it's that next wave of Marxism and collectivist ideology and, you know, subjectivist thinking um, that, uh, or especially, you know, moral uh, positivism, right? I have the right to food. I have the right to healthcare. I have the right to drive a golden helicopter to work, right? Um, like everyone has all these rights now all of a sudden. Th that's, that's very stupid. Like, but nobody's that's prepared very, to take very up the responsibility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, just thinking about like, I have a right to wear your t-shirt. Like, no, you fucking don't. Do you, like, you do not have the right to take my t-shirt. That's it. You can do anything, but you cannot take my fucking t-shirt, right? That's logical negativism and moral negativism, right? Do what thou wilt, but don't fuck with me, right? That's the attitude. Like, do whatever. You can do whatever you want, but you do not have the right to take my scarce property, right? Yeah, That's yeah. it. Right? You don't have a billion rights. You have everything, but you cannot do one thing, and that is steal from me. Right? <laughs> Th that's that's the way that I look at morality and what to do. So all this collectivist uh, Marxist mindset again just has this fundamental. Like it goes even deeper. Like not just do they fail on the assumption of individuality, right? Because they assume collective identities. They are not even in that mindset of checking the assumptions. Right? Yeah. It's a mythology that just floats above. But yeah. there and it's is very no contradictory. It, it's absolutely contradictory because they don't even have the methodology of of starting with assumptions and being logically consistent. Right? Like that's what bothers me so much. It's like uh, not just are is their starting point wrong and obviously their conclusion is wrong. The entire methodology is fucked up and doesn't make any sense. So that just grinds my gears. <laughs> 
Okay. All right. All right. All right. So, so, so now, now you you seem to. What's your association with this Wasabi wallet thing? Now, um, uh, Nick's Bitcoin Dev, uh, he he introduced me to this Wasabi wallet, and I I went onto your landing page. By the way, porn star landing page. I love it. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> Um, yeah, no. The uh, so this this artwork, the blue flickering artwork, is by a friend of uh, Nopara and mine, um, uh, Rick, uh, who actually hosts or hosted an amazing podcast called the Block Digest, uh, okay. one of the best Bitcoin podcasts out there. So check that out. And they were very influential in actually the entire project because they were just good friends of Adam Fiskor, uh, who started it all. Um, so uh, first of all, what, what is Wasabi? It's like a, a Bitcoin wallet that strives to make privacy the default for every user. Um, and that uh, took a while. <laughs> and we're like, it, it first was like the first phase was Hidden Wallet, which was the predecessor, which was just Adam Nopara hacking on some proof of concept. Like, how can we even you know figure out network level privacy? And how can we get fast verification of consensus you know, without revealing my wallet balance to someone else? Like, you know, a, a lot of these basic things. And of course, CoinJoin, right? How to obfuscate my transaction history so that it's not trivial to follow where I spent my money, right? Um, yeah, th those were a lot of the like research days, basically, just to figure out the basic concepts. Uh, and then uh, in August 2018, Wasabi Wallet 1.0 launched, uh, yeah. which uh, got this new graphical user interface um, w uh, that looked pretty qu pretty, actually. It was very honest which is what I loved about it. It actually showed you the coins that you had, right? the actual individual UTXOs, one of the first wallets to do that. Um, and that just made you know, the UTXO model of Bitcoin so intuitive because you just saw coins with a value of Satoshis exactly how it is. Right? And you select some of the coins to put them into a transaction to spend them. Um, like that was a very intuitive and honest UI that I appreciated a lot. Uh, but it also, you know, for example, the coin join was just you know, click a couple buttons and you're registering for a hundred person coin join. Like the the coordination magic that goes on under the hood completely obfuscated to the user, right? I mean, to some extent, we this is one of the points we were struggling still with, but um, it, it was done quite well. But especially like the best part of Wasabi Wallet 1.0, I think, was the Tor integration and the consensus verification, uh, or like to, to not consensus verification, but rather to check how much money you have in your wallet, right? Which Bitcoin transactions you were involved in. Like that was just done so well, so well, it was incredible. So uh, first of all, Tor binaries were packaged, right? Uh, so you are actually running a full-fledged Tor uh, client in there um, and you use it in a power user way. Uh, so for example, uh, you connect, Wasabi connects to up to 12 Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer nodes. Right, so okay. just random Bitcoin full nodes on the network, and it listens to the Bitcoin gossip and like finds unconfirmed transactions and stuff like this. Um, but with each Bitcoin full node, you talk through a different Tor stream, right? So you you get a new Tor identity for each of these okay. Bitcoin full nodes, right? After you for after you somehow interact with this node, like for example, you download a block from that other Bitcoin peer to peer node, you instantly disconnect from that node right after, right, and create a fresh a Tor idea. identity connect to the next Bitcoin full node, right? Uh, that goes even further in the coin join. Like in the coin join coordination, you talk to one coordinator with three different Tor identities, right? Satoshi gives you kind of the general round parameters, 
right? So what is the minimum denomination? What is the fee and so on? Like all these round parameters are handled to a completely independent third party. So the coordinator cannot lie to you, right? Because you have uh, the second party is Alice, right? A new Tor identity is only there to register the inputs, right? So which coins do you actually want to register to the coin join, right? But because Satoshi and Alice are completely different, like the coordinator cannot lie selectively to one Alice with ah. the round parameter because a different Tor identity receives that, right? Unlinkable. Um, and then finally, the third Tor identity is Bob, right? Who, who provides only the outputs. Like, where do you want to receive the money to in this coin join, right? And again, because Alice and Bob are completely different Tor identities on the network layer, communication layer, no linkage, right? Assuming Tor works, which we very much do. <laughs> um, so, uh, like these things were, I mean, all of a sudden you download Wasabi, you install it on Windows or wherever, it's cross-platform. Um, all of a sudden you're this wizard Tor power user, like longest gray beard ever, right? And you don't even know the Tor is running. <laughs> it's like, that was like for me, the, the peak UX success with Wasabi 1.0, um, uh, like together with, with finding out how much money you have without actually telling someone else. How interesting. Okay. so So... Huh. Huh. I did not know that. That's really good. That's really good. So 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 the idea now behind Wasabi Wallet is to is to prevent uh, to present this lovely uh, normal uh user interface that doesn't sort of violate any user experience um expectations and yet you're getting you're getting like maximum level privacy um uh, through your interaction with the with the, with the Bitcoin network. Is that correct? Is that the sort of like the end goal? The uh, this is certainly the nice a nice way of framing what we're currently working on on Wasabi Wallet 2.0, right? Because we are planning okay. this next exponential improvement. Because over the last two years, like Wasabi 1.0 was out, and we did marginal improvements in that UX flow and that user interface, right? And given that old coin join algorithm, um, and a year and a half ago, we were like, yeah, we can like fine tune a couple of things, but we're not going to make a meaningful difference. We need that exponential next step, ah. um, and that comes on. Uh, two big fronts. Uh, one is a completely new coin join algorithm, um, which is vitally important because the old one uh, sucks, uh, to be honest. Um, plus a new uh, user interface, um, because again, the old one actually sucks. Like I loved it. I loved Wasabi 1.0 so, so, so much because it was just the best thing out there at the time. But now when very much doing a lot of thinking about Wasabi 2.0, I'm kind of embarrassed of how many things we got wrong. Like there's uh, like there are really really many small nuances that are just bad, uh, so I'm I'm very happy that we're actually now taking that step to rehaul everything. Basically, it's going to be a almost completely rewritten new wallet. Um, it's 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 a big work, but it was very much uh, needed at this time. The implementation language is C sharp, isn't it? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, and, and and the choice for that. Uh, but because Adam Fiskor is a C sharp wizard, uh, and wow. uh, because he just wrote C sharp code since forever, um, and actually uh, he's good friends with Nicolas Dorier, uh, the guy who worked on BTC Pay Server. Uh, they worked on Tumblebit, mm -hmm. which was another privacy focused coin swap implementation or payment channel implementation, uh, written in C sharp too. Um, so, and just because you know Nicholas worked on N Bitcoin, which is this incredibly powerful Bitcoin library, uh, and he. Nicholas is just a, a rock star coder. Like he's from another world. He's a fucking alien. Um, and Adam is is almost as good, <laughs> but but still he's a wizard. Um, so th that was basically the reason. C sharp. It it with .NET it's cross platform. It has reproducible builds. 
It does. Mm. It has the memory, uh, like no stack overflows and stuff like this. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm not a coder, so I'm the wrong guy Garbage to ask collection. Here. Garbage collection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was the thing. I mean, C sharp works well enough, uh, and there are quite a couple people who who actually like are right in C sharp. Oh, the biggest downside. The biggest downside of Wasabi, like. The so many of the contributors are Windows maximalist fanboys, and it's so fucking annoying. <laughs> like, it's horrible, right? We so like especially Adam and David Molnard and like uh, so many others. Uh, Dan Walmsley are just Microsoft maximalists, right? Since forever. I mean, you know, back in the days, that was a really bad thing. In the meantime, Microsoft at least is is more interested in free software uh, and following that ethos, which is nice. But still, like, it just uh, it rubs me the wrong way. Uh, there are a couple uh, like crazy uh, free software maximalists, like Lucas Antivero or or me or uh, nothing much or Jumar, like all, all running cubes or, or Debian or some <laughs> some nice setup. Um, but yeah, the, the, that's that's really the downside in both in both Wasabi and BTC Pay Server. Way too many Windows fanboys. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like back in the what was it the two thousands? You know, Microsoft. Microsoft was going off on its on its uh, you know uh, open source software is like virus and whatnot. And since then, I've been I'm always you know looking sideways at Microsoft. Like, yeah, when are you gonna when are you gonna pull out those fangs? I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I still think that might be like the biggest attack vector on both Wasabi and BTC Pay. Right? <laughs> somehow, somehow, the evils of Microsoft start manifesting. <laughs> now, now this now now also Wasabi also integrates uh, Lightning. Um, no, is, is not yet. I, I I wish, I wish, man. Like I love the concept of Lightning. It's such a genius solution of how to use, honestly, how Bitcoin works. It's just a settlement layer, like finding. Would you like to go? Would you like to go into how how um uh, uh light the Lightning network works? I've done some research into it, and I tried to get next Bitcoin Dev to, to 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 speak about it, but he just gave sort of like very general um ideas in the, in the sense that it's like it's a way of doing many like many thousands of of bitcoin transactions and lump it up into one kind of thing and uh, let's go into deeper if if we can yeah yeah so the idea of the bitcoin main chain of the blockchain is that first of all you run a full node right that means mm -hmm. that you yourself define the rules of your monetary network right whichever consensus rule you want to type in your code that is gonna. That's what's gonna run on your full node, right? You're the the judge uh, uh, of what rules you want to have, right? Then you connect to other Bitcoin full nodes, right? And you ask for their conclusions, right? Uh, what transactions do you think are valid according to your rules, right? And then these transactions are sent from this other node to you, and now you look at this transaction or this block, and you ask for yourself: Is this valid according to my own rules, right? So you verify yourself. Uh, is this honest? Is this true? Um, if yes, perfect. You just keep it uh, and you ask for the next block. But if no, if you think that this block is, is wrong, is broken, uh, not just do you delete the block, you actually disconnect from the other node because mm -hmm. it just tried to lie to you. Like it said something true that you clearly define not to be true. Right? So he's not useful to you. So you disconnect. Uh, you're literally the judge, jury, and executioner of the rules of your own money. Right, fucking insane. First of all, so but um, the way that Bitcoin works is that it, these full nodes can reach a consensus if two things happen. Right, 
if they all run the same compatible rule set, if none of their individual rules break each other, right? If there's no logical contradictions, right? Then uh, and there are like transactions widely propagated throughout the network, so that every user has the same set of transactions, right? These two things you really have to figure out, um, and that's basically the blockchain, right? And proof of work, uh, where every full node somehow will find out all of the transactions that happened in this network where everyone agrees on what the rules are, right? Um, and this is a beautiful solution to many problems, but it sucks in terms of scalability, right? because all of a sudden you have to verify the transaction of everyone else just to make sure that everyone followed the rules and nobody printed money, right? That does not scale fundamentally. No way that you're going to scale that, right? Um, so we cannot just make every transaction on the blockchain where everyone needs to read it, everyone needs to verify it does not work, does not work, right? So the idea is to somehow figure out how to make a Bitcoin transaction that is secure, right? That once it is made, it cannot be undone, right? But a transaction where you do not have to actually send it to every user uh, of the Bitcoin full node, but uh, to verify it, right? But that where you can kind of shard the transaction quantity by keeping some of these transaction locally on your site. Um, the general concept of this idea, and Lightning is a rough implementation but not focused on it, is called client-side validated state. Right? The blockchain is like the, the global consensus validated state. Right? Everyone agrees on what is the latest state of, uh, of this network. Right? Everyone agrees, the most recent uh, proof of work, uh, most heavy chain. Right? Um, while in the Lightning network, you keep some of that state Right, the most up-to-date representation of who can spend this Bitcoin. You keep it locally on your site. Right? And because you keep it locally, and only you and maybe your channel buddy needs to see it, right? that means that you can make a bunch more transactions much more quicker right? just because you don't have to tell everyone about it. So this improves the privacy by just you not having to tell everyone about every transaction you make. Right? And secondly, it improves scalability because nobody needs to verify all of these. Right? So the idea of Lightning Network is to, to use the global consensus state machine that is the Bitcoin blockchain to verify mainly two transactions. First is one to open the payment channel, right? to actually put money into a specific private property contract that makes this entire thing even possible. Right? And everyone verifies this. So everyone knows that there is some amount of Bitcoin in this certain lock, uh, uh, like in this uh, yeah, address. Um, and then like a second, the closing of this payment channel, right? So at the end of this entire ceremony where you've done all your client-side transactions, right? Eventually you will want to settle and prove to everyone on the network what is the actual latest state uh, of who owns this coin, right? And then you go out of client-side uh, validation into the global uh, consensus uh, verification by adding the closing transaction and again proving precisely who owns the coin now and making sure everyone agrees on that right you know it's interesting you say this and and the way you the way you say it sort of make earlier on in our conversation you were talking about how how private property like basically alice alice gets hold of the tree first and can choose to cut down it and make it into a like a, a raft and then and bob can choose to cut down the tree and make it into a into a house or something uh, and and essentially there's no they're not shared property but in this in this situation it's it's quite interesting because basically 
two individuals are able to own this 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 shared contract this shared contract um which allows us to set up this this uh this channel of of communication of 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 value of um you know tangible uh, represented representation of value that can share between us so it's it's almost like uh, it's difficult for me to say this but but it's like this uh, new ability of of multiple parties being able to share ownership of something can expand out in a way that can communicate hopping over these sorts of channels you know in the form of these uh, um, routing payments over the lightning network do you, do you are you getting what i'm saying maybe you can elaborate a little bit better yeah this is one of the topics that fascinated me a couple of years ago when I started to realize it. I actually wrote a bachelor thesis on it, which uh, Nick Spikwandev uh, mentioned in the in the last talk, which was, the uh, it was titled Non-Simulated Shared Ownership of Scarce Bitcoin in the Light with Multi-Signatures in the Lightning Network. Very, very oh, convoluted God. long title. Um, but um, like since then, I even kind of refined my conclusion that this is not just about multi-signatures. This is about Bitcoin script. Bitcoin script enables non-simulated shared owner or ownership of any asset, programmable ownership. Like this is surreal. This is absolutely crazy um, because, you know, if you have, for example, that piece of wood, right? Um, how are you actually going to enforce, right? That your ownership claims are being upheld, right? That if you actually cut it down, how are you going to ensure that nobody's going to take it? Right? Because it is obviously yours, right? And so far, I mean, the, the first thing to do is to stand next to the log of wood with a gun and shoot anyone who tries to take it, right? I mean, that's that's one thing, but again, that's that's inefficient, right? That takes a lot of time. So there are ways to specialize this with, for example, you know, hiring bodyguards or, for example, you know, setting up a judge and jury system uh, to, after the fact, punish the people who did it. Right? That's uh, much more efficient to, after the fact, only go after someone rather than try to prevent every wrongdoing that is happening, right? So court systems, very useful, right? Um, so, but ultimately you rely in this court system, you rely on some other trusted third party to actually defend your claim, right? And that's just another monkey. Like he's gonna like backstab you, right? And try to steal from you too. So that's a very flawed system. For your own defense of your own property, you must rely on this other person um, to, to do it. and. That just, I mean, that works to a certain extent, right? If we have a lot of trust in this in this uh, third party, but it sucks, right? Like we should figure out how to do that better. And Bitcoin is that. Like it's it's insane because it it combines is or first of all, it uses non-scarce information of code, right? Bitcoin is just software, right? Um, but out of the way that individuals use this software, non-scarce software, actually a scarce asset is being created, something where there is a potential conflict of ownership of who can spend this certain unspent transaction output, right? That's a potential conflict. Can Alice spend it? Can Bob spend it? Who's going to spend it, right? And the genius idea of Bitcoin is that the definition of the property right um, is directly baked into the scarce asset itself, right? It's it's somewhat like a treasury chest, right? This Bitcoin UTXO is a treasury chest, and 
the way that you can use your treasury chest is just by unlocking it, right? So the lock is directly baked into the treasure chest itself. Something like I think, this. I think I think maybe we can explain it is is the value is the information and the information is the value. There there is no more indirection between that real world thing. It's like if I have the knowledge of that key, that's the value. Uh, can I describe yes. it that way? <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. So there, there let's let's talk about what are the non-scarce aspects of Bitcoin because there are many, right? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, the code, right? Free software, MIT license, use it, right? Free. Um, second, like the ability to run the code on your own full note, right? That that is also you know uh, uh, the hardware itself is of course scarce, right? So the computer that you run it on is scarce. So it, it's your property to run whatever code you want. Right? It's your scarce computer. You decide what software to run on, but the software you run on is non-scarce. So how about you know the Bitcoin transaction itself? Can you say, I own this Bitcoin transaction? Oh, no, it's just ones and zeros. You don't own the number four, right? So no, you, don't, you do not own the Bitcoin transaction or a Bitcoin block, right? This is just information. It's non-scarce, right? Uh, or then even the, the, for example, private key. Like, do you own the private key? No. Fucker, of course not. Like you do not own the number four, right? Same thing. Like this is just a non-scarce number. It's it's a large number, but you don't own it. Now maybe you are the only one that knows it, right? Right? But th that's something different. Now you have a secret of a non-scarce information, right? But still, if I tell you my private key, I did not sacrifice it. I still remember my private key, right? Just now you have a copy of it and you remember the same number that I do, right? But ultimately, you did not steal from me. Copying someone else's private key, no theft. No theft happened whatsoever, right? But uh, how are how is this then used in Bitcoin? And where actually does the scarcity come in? And that is that each address, basically, um, a non-scarce address is just a representation, a hash of the Bitcoin script. And the Bitcoin script, you know, defines clearly under which conditions a spending transaction of this coin is considered to be valid. It's part of the consensus rules, right? Uh, these non-scarce rules that we have uh, all agreed upon in our full notes, right, will recognize the script. And if it says object signature, right, and 160 bytes or something, then it's going to check the signature. And if it's an invalid signature, for whatever reason, right, it's not going to be a valid transaction because the non-scarce rules said so, right? Um, so all, all of a sudden, or, or but if it is actually a valid transaction, then yes, it uh, or a valid signature, then it is a valid transaction. It is a valid block, and yes, this coin just got spent, right? That's the crazy thing. That's the crazy thing. All of a sudden, we have scarcity in this UTXO. Who can spend it? Only that transaction that actually validates the script. Right and all other rules that are being applied, so we have exclusivity. Right, if this one transaction does not validate as true, right, it's a wrong transaction. Done. Right, so it cannot spend the Bitcoin. You're excluded from spending this Bitcoin. Right, so all of a sudden we have not just defined the property rights in under which conditions can this coin be spent. We've also enforced it in the same system, in the same atomic unit, like. This is so mind-boggling that the, the definition, the verification, and the enforcement of the private property contracts is handled in one atomic entity that makes theft 
impossible. There has not been a single Bitcoin stolen. Not ever. Not once. There was not one transaction that is confirmed on today's most proof-of-work blockchain that spent an output without providing a valid signature script. Did not happen. Ever. No single theft in Bitcoin. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Gosh, you've, you've left me at, without words now. <laughs> it's, I think we can also probe deeper into this in, in some sense. Like, I don't even know how to further go into this. Like, you wrote that thesis, man. You wrote that thesis. You go into it. You, there's, there's, pl <laughs> there's plenty of bloody space in there to go into that. I mean, like, okay, the implications. What are the implications of that now? Um, like, this, I, this is societal. This is society. This is a potential of changing society almost entirely. In the sense that, like, you know, like legal systems can start to evolve. You know, start to change. Like, what, what, what do you, what do you see? What do you see? Like, we can already start to see like a massive uptake in 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 by by institutions by you know by people around the world like is this going to like propel us into this uh you know the second second class two type society do you know what do you know what i mean like there's different classes of society there's one where you like class three is where we like harnessing the power of the star kind of thing yeah, yeah. um and i i think hayek said that uh the advancement of society is always a new discovery in uh, subjective as uh, like su subjectivism um in the sense of you know uh individual thinking like like mm. praxeology basically any major advancement in human society was one where we discovered a further truth of individuality um and i think this can be further condensed down to uh, it was an innov innovation in property right in how to protect your scarce resources Right. Um, I think this is really one of the major drivers of society and a lot of a lot of uh, um, innovations were just to solve that problem. Like gold is a great innovation to protect your property. Right. Lawyers are a great innovation uh, like to protect your property and, uh, you know, private property contracts, both verbal as well as written right? and a judge system to actually enforce those incredibly useful incredibly useful right so even in an anarchist society we will have rules right and they will be followed absolutely and there will be punishment if you don't follow them um and but bitcoin takes this to a whole new level like because it's it's not just like these are the rules and if you don't follow them you like we will punish you it's like these are the rules and you cannot break them done like it's the first time where we have like cryptographically enforceable, mathematically enforceable property rights, where there are there is no trusted third party. There is just mathematics, right? And if you cannot provide a signature, because you cannot, right? Because you don't have the secret, it's literally impossible to do, right? This just means that we have created this exclusivity in a in a cryptographically enforceable way. Like this is this is huge. This might be the biggest innovation of mankind ever, like ever, ever. Um, it, I, it's I'm bullish as fuck. <laughs> no, no, I, I completely, I, I completely agree with you. What I like about it is it, it's one of one of the many aspects I like about it is is it's actually because of this, because of this ability to um, 
this actual scarcity that you've just mentioned about these enforced rules. You know, how do we even define that? I want to I want to come up with a nice little succinct way of defining that. Give it a couple of words. Get, I mean, you must have already named this thing in your thesis. Like, what's the name of um, that scarcity? Well, so I, I wrote at the predecessors to that one bachelor thesis was uh, called Anarchy in Money, um, which defined that aspect of what it actually means to run a Bitcoin full note. Right? And as I laid mm -hmm. out before, that these are non-scarce rules, right? And you can make them up, right? Like that that's that's a beautiful thing. Like you can run your own rules, create your own yeah. shitcoin, right? Well, Fork yeah, Bitcoin, well, it... change it to 52 million Bitcoin. You can you okay. can do it, right? Nobody can stop you to choose which rules you want to run. Yeah. It's just okay. non-scare speech, right? Whatever you say, you say. Mm. Right. Mm. So th this is, I think, where it all starts. Like the aspect that okay. all of a sudden individuals can in fact choose which monetary rules to follow and nobody can stop them to make an idiotic choice right mm -hmm. um because of course your action has consequences and if you choose something you will have to live with these consequences right yes yes so now the very interesting question is is in that world where the individual has the responsibility to figure out which monetary rules to follow which rules will he follow right what will he choose? And this is where we get into speculation and psychology, right? Uh, no longer in the realm of, of economics, um, of what are your problems and what do you want to fix them? Or, and how do you want to fix them, right? Um, but like, ultimately, this is where it starts. And it's, it just happened that Satoshi articulated a certain set of rules that are so, so eloquent like non-scarce consensus rules. Just he spoke a couple sentences, but there was so much power in these words. Like the gravity of the consequences of the words that were spoken by Satoshi are mind-boggling, right? But ultimately, just words, right? He just put out there an idea and then individuals acted upon that idea, right? And this is also very important to consider. Bitcoin is just a technology. It doesn't do anything by itself, right? Humans act, individuals act, right? So individuals manifest the change and individuals have found Bitcoin to be a useful technology, a useful piece of information to solve their problems better. But ultimately the scarcity still comes from individuals, right? Um, like scarcity property rights only comes up in terms where two individuals have a conflict over when to use what. Right. Um, so even that entire problem of Bitcoin is not really even solved by technology. It's it's more like solved by the human incentives right? of um, of how to yeah, how to allocate these scarce resources that we just spoken into existence. It's crazy. Hmm. Hmm. So the upgrade of of this Bitcoin script language, I believe it's taproot, isn't it? Could you go yes. into that? Taproot is really fascinating, and it has the it has the general idea that, or the the current problem is that in the current Bitcoin script language, that definition of who can spend the Bitcoin under which conditions is all written in one single line, basically. Right, the entire condition of the script is is committed to in the Bitcoin address by hashing it 
and then revealed when spending that Bitcoin, right? Uh, by actually revealing the entire script in the input, plus mm -hmm. the signature script, right? The actually solution to the script is both provided in the input of a Bitcoin transaction. Now, the problem is, again, you have to tell everyone about every small condition in your private property contract. You have to lay out the entire thing with all the conditions, all the possible scenarios. Like, for example, either Alice can spend the coin on her own, or out of Bob, Charlie, and David, two out of these three can spend the coin, right? So we have an either or condition. Now, if Alice signs the coin on uh, like the transaction on her own, right? It's a valid script because she was in, in one of the validation paths, right? But the other condition that was not even used, right? The two or three multi-signature is still revealed to everyone and everyone needs to see it. And everyone needs to see if this was actually committed to in the address by hashing the script again and see if that address actually comes out. Um, and that sucks, right? Now you need to mm. tell everyone a part of a contract that you actually never ended up using, right? And Taproot is the idea to improve that fact so that you can have very, very complex smart uh, property contracts um, that define who can spend coins under many different uh, uh, situations, right? Um, but when you spend that coin, you actually only reveal that one condition path that you actually validated, right? Um, so it's literally a Merkle tree, right? Um, where you have all of your individual script conditions um, in at the bottom leaf parts of this tap tree. Uh, so one is Alice on her own, or no, that's actually, so one is a two of three multi-signature, the other is a two of two multi-signature after one year, then we have a hash time lock contract in there, uh, in the next branch, and the next branch is a seven out of 11 multi-signature, right, or whatever, you can have all of these different spending conditions where any one of them has the power to spend this coin, right? Um, as, as, yeah, uh, and the nice thing is you only need to reveal which one you are ever using. So for example, yeah. in the previous example, if you want to use that seven out of 11 multi-signature, yeah. right? Yeah. You just reveal that you that there was a seven out of 11 multi-sig in this tab leaf. You do a Merkle proof, right? To prove that this is actually correct. And then you do like the Schnorr public key tweaking um, to actually find out that this was committed to in the address. Um, uh, or maybe let's a, a bit more in detail in, in uh, or yeah, no, no. First, let's like. What do you think about the tap tree construction? Oh no, no, no! <laughs> Go into it, please. I, I'm I'm extracting information from this. Okay, cool. So, so like the again, the nice thing with this tap tree is we can have two to the power of 128 um, branches. Right? Oh. That's that's many conditions that you can put in there, like. And the cool thing and is, you don't clog up, and, you, and you don't clog up the blockchain with all of that information too. This, is, exactly. this ain't Ethereum. This ain't Ethereum. This ain't <laughs> Ethereum. No. And I just yesterday had a phenomenal conversation with Andrew Chow, who even told me that there is currently ongoing work that we could, or like at least research, um, that we could put into a branch of the taproot condition a quantum secure signature, right, or like a public key that has to be verified with a quantum secure signature algorithm, right? These things are gigantic, like a kilobyte, right, each. Oh, so wow. crazy huge. So you yeah. don't actually want to end up using it, right? So you could not use it in today's script. Like if in every script you just add this random subcondition that, yeah, this quantum secure 
like thing, then you would have to have so many huge public keys on the blockchain. Impossible, right? But with Taproot, you can have like this edge case scenario protected, right? That if there ever was some quantum resistant thing, you just soft fork this in, right? And um, from then on out, even the old coins can still be spent in a quantum resistant way. So we can even prepare years in advance, right? At no cost. If we never actually use these quantum resistant thing, we can prepare for this attack years in advance, uh, just because it's much more efficient. Right? Oh, fascinating, fascinating. So, what kind of what? I mean, okay. So this this is the bedrock. This Schnorr, okay, Schnorr signatures go hand in hand with the taproot thing. Could you go into de a little bit detail of what exactly the Schnorr signature is? And just by the way, I. Think it's a stroke of bloody genius that they're able to basically, you know, not add a single more byte to 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 to, to Bitcoin's uh, ledger uh, per one of these 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 transactions. It this is engineering. This is straight up engineering genius in in my in my book. Like yeah, and and that's that's then when you realize how stupid the idea was to increase the block size with a hard fork. Right, because you're like, that's just an in like you okay. You stand in front of the ocean and you shovel it out with a bucket, right? And now you have a bucket that's twenty percent larger. Ooh, yeah, that's that's gonna make a difference, right? <laughs> and then you have these genius talking about taproot even before all that happened, and you have the ideas of the Lightning Network, like removing as much information from the blocks as fucking possible, right? And these idiots come like, oh, but we just increased the block size. That sounds like a smart idea. <laughs> But it goes, but yeah, but but also goes a little bit deeper than that. Look at all the shit coins that have like sort of spun off this, you know, and 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 you know, these 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 shit coin chillers, they're, they're gonna they're gonna shit all over Bitcoin saying, oh, you know, Schnorr signatures is not that's such a great advancement, etc. etc. It's like, uh, <clears throat> you're shilling your shit coin, you, you have no idea what you're doing, what you're talking about, because. Oh yeah, you wanted to go into what what um, Schnorr signatures are and and how they sort of couple with Taproot. Yeah. Um, so again, we have this Taproot tree, right, with a bunch of script conditions at the bottom, and we do a Merkle tree hashing to get one root, right? And the Merkle root commits to every single of these branches, right? And now the trick is, how do we actually commit all of these scripts into the Bitcoin address itself, right? Uh, because so previously, you uh, in in the legacy script, we have this one line of script, right? And we simply hash it, SHA-256 and MD50, uh, and uh, 58, and then we get the address format, right? With the checksums and everything. But it's it's literally just a hash of the script, right? Um, but that means, of course, you have to reveal the entire script, right? In order to uh, like to prove that it's the hash and actually the address. So that doesn't work. So uh, the tab tree is basically a Merkleized abstract syntax tree. Uh, old idea, like 2013, right? Nothing new. Nice. I just finally did it. Um, and where the idea of taproot comes in is that we take this, this Merkle root um, and we tweak it to an internal public key. Okay, so this internal public key is a Schnorr public key that can be validated with a Schnorr signature, right? But because of the beauty and the simplicity of the Schnorr signature algorithm, we can do much more math with it than with ECDSA, much easier and safer, um, in, in, including public key tweaking. So that's literally, if I understand correctly, simply one plus one equals two, right? We take the public key, 
plus the hash of the Merkle root, which is just another number, right? And um, we the result of that is now our tap root, uh, or, or what's it called, like the top level key, I think. And the so the interesting thing is that if we ever want to use one of these scripts, um, the way that we can prove that this is actually a script that we committed to in this public key is by revealing the script itself that we end up using plus a Merkle tree to prove that this script was actually in the Merkle root, right? Um, and then we provide the internal public key, right? Uh, and we then a verifier can easily add the Merkle root right, to the public key, internal public key, and get the tweaked public key on the top level, which is the Bitcoin address, right? The Bitcoin address in Taproot is actually a public key, right? No longer a public key hash, it is the public key, precisely because then you can do this public key tweaking, right? And you can verify it, uh, which is not possible with hashing. Um, and this means that the verifier can very easily see with just the script, the Merkle inclusion proof, uh, the internal public key, right? Um, he can verify that this script was in fact part of the spending conditions at the time that the coin was generated because it commits to the address, right? Um, and this is the so-called script path spending. So you can spend any of these script paths in this way, right? By only revealing the one script because of the Merkle inclusion proof. But the genius idea of Taproot is that in most cases, right? In most cases of advanced scripting contracts, there is a cooperative case where every party agrees, right? For example, a Lightning Network channel, right? There are two parties, uh, three spending conditions with these hash time lock contract refunds and such, right? Um, but in in the cooperative case, we just have a two out of two multi-signature, multi right? Uh, and that's just Alice and Bob agree, perfect. There's no need to use the lawyer system of the Bitcoin blockchain in verifying the script if nobody is in disagreement, right? If everything is good, move along, right? No need to to like to to verify a complex script. Um, and the nice thing in that is, in addition, so whoever can provide a signature to the top level or a tweaked taproot key, right? So the tweaked taproot key is the combination of the internal taproot key with the Merkle root, right? Um, so whoever can provide a signature for the top level can actually spend this coin um, just with the single signature to that aggregated public key, to that tweaked public key. Um, so, and who can provide a, a signature to this is anyone who can provide a signature to the internal taproot key, right? Because then you just, with your internal private key, sign a message, or no, I actually think you, you add the root of the Merkle tree to your private key, like you do the same key tweaking on your private key, and then you produce a signature with this tweak private key, and this mm -hmm. signature is valid to the tweak public key, right? Um, and therefore, you can in the cooperative case where you have the private key of this top level uh, of this uh, internal taproot uh, construction, you can provide a valid signature to the aggregated uh, or tweaked key without even revealing that there existed a script path, right? Nobody knows if you actually ended up using the Smirkle tree construction, right? Because you can, in fact, just put a bunch of random data, right, uh, into the Merkle tree. Like, there's no single spending condition. This is literally just a single six spend, right? That's just what it is. But it could be that this is just a cooperative spending path 
of this crazy complex underlying contract that was defined in like millions of tap leaves, right? Um, hmm. And on, in addition to that, with Schnorr signatures, we can actually aggregate public keys and aggregate signatures. So this one internal public key might in fact be a seven out of 11 threshold uh, Schnorr signature, right? That just looks like a single public key, but where a signature can only be produced if seven out of the key holders provide, uh, like sign the same message, right? So even in the cooperative case, we can still have multi-signatures, M of M, or threshold signatures, K of N, right? Um, so all of that together just means that in the cooperative case, everything looks like a single signature, even if that cooperative case was some crazy multi-signature scheme, right? And in, the, in a worst case where you actually have to reveal some of the script, right? you don't have to reveal it all. You just reveal whichever specific spending condition you actually validate. Fascinating. Absolutely yeah. fascinating. <laughs> so, so we've been going for about an hour and 10 minutes. So I'm going to stop the recording and then start it again. Okay, we're back. Um, okay, yeah. So the intermission is now over. We just had a quick pee break. <laughs> um, yeah, the, so with, with that knowledge in mind, um, the current implementation of Lightning, it doesn't use Taproot, does it? No, and that's a big, big, big problem. Um, because, well, Lightning Network is a genius idea, but the way that it's implemented currently is a real hack, like seriously. Um, uh, again, it's, uh, for example, one of, the, one of the privacy guarantees of Lightning is that non-announced channels should actually remain private and not cluster to a wallet. But simply because of the fact that Lightning Network uses these specific script types Right? And every time that you spend your, your uh, closing transaction, you reveal the entire script. Right? It's just obvious to see that this was a lightning channel. Um, uh, and there are many other correlations as well, other than the script type, but the script type is for sure a big one. Um, so Taproot improves that, right? because in the cooperative close, it's just a single public key and a single signature. You don't even know that there was a script. Right? And only in the uncooperative case, do you actually have to reveal one of your script, uh, like tap root uh, paths? <laughs> and um, But even here, right? They are no longer multi-signatures because we just use music, so it's a, it looks like a single sig. And even further, in a nice implementation, there are no longer hashed time-locked contracts. Right? There are point time-locked contracts, which do the same Whoa. thing. Press pause. Okay. Okay, so there's point time-locked contracts? What? I don't know this. Uh, this is a nice trick to do the same thing as a hash time lock contract does, yes. which is commit to a secret. Right. So, so first yes. generate the secret, commit to the secret, which you do by hashing to the secret, right? And then you put that hash into the Bitcoin script. And eventually, if you want to use this, you have to provide the pre-image to this hash, right? So, uh, which means that you were the one that knew the secret that was committed to before, right? And then something oh, happens, you can spend the coin. Ah, that's because you've added the conditions in the taproot on the actual um, chain, which is which is you, which allows you to simplify. Oh my God, that's great! So the the way that point time lock contracts work um, is actually uh, by just not using hashing, but by using the Schnorr signature algorithm to do the same thing. Yes. Right? So yes. you have a secret, and you want to commit to the secret. Just simply generate the public key. 
right? <laughs> so this would actually simplify the implementation of of a lightning uh, 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 network yes. on using 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 um, taproot and the Schnorr signatures dramatically, as well as significantly improving the the privacy aspects of it. Yes, and just to illustrate how far-reaching that is, currently, again, if you build this HTLC in a Lightning Network route, you know, first of all, everyone sees it's a hash pre-image and a hash, right? So if that goes on chain, everyone knows it was a Lightning channel, right? But even worse, every node in the route of this payment uses the same hash and the same pre-image, right? So first of all, two people on the node, like on the same path, will find out that they are on the same path, right? Which is a bad thing. Uh, and that can even lead to like people stealing the the routing free from other nodes by the so-called wormhole attack. Um, the thing gets even more crazy with multi-path payments, right? Because now every path and every hop on each path uses the same hash pre-image. Ridiculous, right? Super not private. Everyone can just find out that we're all part of the same payment. Um, and point time lock contracts do this with adapter signatures. Um, and in these adapter signatures, we use public key tweaking so that we can actually um, uh, like uh, where each individual route routing node will have a different public key and will have to provide a different signature right? than anyone else in the route. Even though they commit to the same deterministic chain of events, they don't know that they are part of the same deterministic chain of events because everything is tweaked to someone else's public key. God damn it, that's fascinating. Yeah, but hey, there's no innovation happening on Bitcoin. No, there's none whatsoever. It's a stagnant old decade old <laughs> technology. Nothing's happening. Dude, this is blowing this is blowing every other shit coin straight out the water. Straight out the water. Oh, I had a good I had a good question lined up for you next. <laughs> what was it? What was it? What was it? Come on. Oh. Maybe one of one of the nice cool additions that we can do with Taproot is because we eliminate the script fingerprinting of Lightning Network channels, especially in the cooperative case, all of a sudden yes. they look like single signatures, right? Yes. So now this is cool because coin joins are usually single signature users, right? Just mixing to themselves. And so far we did not implement any advanced multi-sig or Lightning Network script type in Wasabi because, well, there's a fingerprint. But then if only 1% of our users use Lightning Network channels, well, then their anonymity set is 1% of all other users. Yeah, right? So that's a privacy fuck up. With Taproot, yeah. right, opening a Lightning yes. channel looks the exact same as just paying for your pizza on chain. It goes a little further than that because in, in essence, this point, what point based, point time lock contract? Point time lock contract. Point PTLC. time lock contract. Yeah, PTLC. It it kind of looks like a it it's a it's inherently built in the concept of 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 um, coin joining into it. You see what I mean? It's like yes. a yeah yeah. You can use. Um, I I actually had a talk at the Hackers Congress in 2019 or so about mm -hmm. uh, time traveling the time chain, <laughs> where I talked about how how we can use Taproot to build atomic swaps um, privately. Uh, that look indistinguishable from single signature naive spending transactions. And my conclusion of the talk was, uh, by the way, Lightning Network is a pay uh, is a coin swap implementation, right? You swap coins and you even route through the network to swap these coins. Um, but like with Taproot, this becomes indistinguishable from a single sig user, and therefore you can like open a Lightning Network channel in a coin join. You might even cooperatively close a Lightning Network channel in a coin join, or you might. Like have an input in coin join number one 
right? Which is actually like the output is a swap contract and you don't use that swap contract, right? Output, you actually get a new output in CoinJoin number 121, right? Uh, where you get the output, but you don't even have an input, right? So all of a sudden you enter the CoinJoin anonymity set in transaction one and you leave it in transaction 121, right? <laughs> That's absolutely ridiculous because it increases your anonymity set across all coin joints, right? So all of these advanced things become possible with Taproot. Fascinating. Taproot might, it's, I mean, it, it still might not hit uh, uh, the, the, main, the main line of Bitcoin. Um, do you see any hindrances for this coin becoming, you know, on, on mainline? Uh, no, I, th I think Taproot will be out hopefully rather soon. There seems to be a, a consensus now on the speedy trial activation method, which is basically a miner activated soft fork uh, that if 90% of all miners signal readiness to activate Taproot within three months, then we simply activate Taproot and it or it is locked in and three months later it will be activated and you can actually use it. So in, th in this best case scenario where miners do signal readiness and just from based on surveys, it seems they do over 90%, uh, then this would mean we have within like maybe even just three or four months, we actually have Taproot activated. Um, so I hope that this will be the case and that we will actually see the activation happening rather soon. The implementation code of the speedy trial activation is, is being done right now, probably gonna be released by Jonas. Um, Jonas is working a lot on it, I think. Um, he did a lot of taproot work, no no question. Um, I know that Andrew Chow is working on it. I just spoke to him yesterday. Um, so he is currently focusing on that, like, uh, oh, many. Like the, the pull request on, on uh, slash Bitcoin slash Bitcoin gets like daily a couple comments. So it, there, there are many people involved in actually building this. Um, so hopefully it goes through. Uh, if if that minor activated soft fork does not signal readiness by uh, three months after release, uh, then we will see quickly what the next steps are. Uh, and maybe it's time for another user activated soft fork, which is risky, very risky. Very. Um, uh, so yeah, let's let's hope that minor signaling works again. It worked flawlessly for CTV, uh, or like object template verify. Uh, no, uh, check time log verify. Um, which uh, so their miner activating signaling was flawless. Segwit made a bunch of drama out of it because miners had a financial incentive not to activate it because of ASIC boost. Um, so this kind of screwed with all the incentives. With Taproot, there seems to be no downside to miner profit line rather than increase it <laughs> because it makes Bitcoin more useful. Uh, so hopefully the incentives work out again. Well, I mean, also there's nothing stopping them from uh, from 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 running Lightning relay nodes too. Which is also a, a source of exactly profit for them. No, I, so, I, th okay. I think again, like uh, mining pools actually make a lot of payments, right? Um, because well, they pay all the the grinders, right? All the individual miners. So yeah, if you can make payouts over Lightning, you save so much on fees. But that's true. Um, that's too. That too. And also exchanges. So you got the the heavy sure. weight of exchanges who are like, yeah, stuff. This uh, the, the long periods of waiting. We can just you can you can just. You can send your coins in, do your trade, and get it straight out again. Very quick yeah. and efficient. Yeah, Very you nice. can like you can snipe an order of the order book by just making a lightning payment to your account at the exchange, and they don't even custody for you, right? You just you just send it in. You don't have any balance on the exchange. Just whenever you buy or you you want to trade, you just send some Bitcoin via Lightning, or you receive then the Bitcoin. Yeah, like, yeah, like that. 
that shit but is worth dude, for like a year now. <laughs> like, like if if we look at if we look at Bitcoin in another way, it's like the mo there th this I think bar none in the history of humanity have we seen uh, something which was such a degree of of price discovery across how many exchanges in the world at the moment is Bitcoin being traded and how many different trading pairs. Um, and, you know, arbitrage between exchanges is quite difficult because of the confirmation time. Or with the Lightning Network, suddenly we're going to see a massively reduced uh, time between between exchanges. So we're going to see even more price discovery on Bitcoin. It, this is this is quite something that we've just never seen this before on humanity. Just never. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's not. It's that, it's that crazy. And, like, we're just gawking around in the dark <laughs> trying to figure out what the fuck is going on but i mean i don't know like this is crazy ridiculous <laughs> it's, it's but... like the apes the apes have discovered fire you can imagine you can see tom hanks on the island fire <laughs> yeah with the monkeys in space odyssey like standing in front of yeah. the, the uh, black stone like <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> no no clue what the fuck we've discovered Right, and is it going to burn me? Is it going to kill me? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> no, what's, what's, what it's going to do is it's just going to suck the, the, the value from the world. We're going to see price, natural price discovery in properties and all sorts of different assets. It's just going to, it's like a black hole. The black yeah. hole. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So you say about two, oh, sorry, about op, in an optimistic case, we're looking at about four to five months for uh, taproot and Schnorr activation. They will come in well, together, right? Uh, yes, uh, Schnorr, Taproot, and TapScript, which is a new scripting code uh, okay. for that to understand the Schnorr signatures and stuff. Um, those will be coming together. Like it's three BIPs, three forty, three forty one, three forty two are being activated mm -hmm. in this one software, and they're um, all fully implemented already. Yes, uh, uh, and already running on Signet, the new testing environment, since a year or so. So. Yeah, Taproot is is well researched, well tested, well implemented, well reviewed. Uh, it's it's high quality software. I mean, you know, we're just gawking at the awesomeness of it on a conceptual layer. Like I'm sure the implementation is is one of its kind. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Yeah. Are there any are there any Lightning uh, implementations out there that are currently looking to transfer over to using Taproot, or all of them are? Um, I think. Uh, all of them must. Like Taproot is a prerequisite for Lightning Network working long term. Um, but I mean, are there any of them that are, that are actually actively doing this now? Uh, no, because I mean, it's it kind of premature work, right? Um, like I mean, Taproot. It was obvious that we we're going to activate Taproot like two years ago, right? So developers have been thinking about it. There was a lot of research going on on how we can actually then use it finally. But yeah, it's. Um, uh, like yeah, we first have to uh, like wait uh, a bit until it makes sense to implement it. Uh, but mm -hmm. there are there are like nice standards. For example, the LNBBP protocol stack, which is an alternative specification of the Lightning Network bolts. Like the bolts are a mess; they are just a mess. Uh, bad bad what specification. Is Lightning Network bolts. Uh, what is that? Yes, bolts is an acronym for Basics of Lightning Network Technology, and this is similar okay. to the Bitcoin BIPs. So that this kind of specifies what a Lightning Network implementation must do, so that it is mm -hmm. like that it can talk to each other. Um, it's kind of like a, a weird approach. I don't want to go into details of it, but there is the LNPBP standard, which is just a more modular 
and modular way of specifying the protocol. It reaches the same conclusion, but it's just more modular. And in this more modular approach, there exists already for a long time specification for how to use Taproot. Um, and this is used in a lot of the Rust Lightning projects. Like um, So th this type of mindset to develop it. And for example, the RGB node, um, which is like this other crazy, crazy thing with client-side validated state that is so much more advanced than Lightning. Lightning is kindergarten compared to RGB, seriously. Um, so R RGB stands for what? Uh, I don't know, actually. I think it's just a pun on the color code, right? Um, <laughs> it, it's, okay. kind of a, it's kind of a fork of the original idea of uh, colored coins, okay. right? That you uh, put some additional metadata wow. into the address of a Bitcoin you take so right into the script. And then you can make some contingent things happening. Uh, it's much more advanced than that. Color coin, again, was a shit show. Um, but RGB uses the idea of client-side validated state. As I mentioned previously, Peter Todd is uh, like you have to listen to Peter Todd for probably about ten hours before you can somehow understand the mindset that he's looking at at this approach. Like it's crazy complex. Even like don't let me get started on proof, Marshall, which is the other insane thing that I just do not understand. <laughs> but so the the simple idea of client side validated state is that. Again, we don't want to share the global consensus state of the Bitcoin blockchain, right? That just doesn't scale. So the way that we do that is that, uh, or the problem is, first of all, if we make a state update, right, um, everyone should know that we've made a state update, right? Um, at least everyone that's interested, right? Not the entire Bitcoin blockchain, but everyone who is interested should actually like see that a state update has just happened. Right? And um, one other important thing, the state update can only happen once. Same as in Bitcoin, no double spend, right? Like oh, the I state see. of a UTXO only changes once. It's spent oh, yeah. or it's not spent, right? And the same with any advanced stating machine, right? No double spends. Like the, the like it always has to like increment. There cannot be forks in who. Well, actually you can't have an F you can't have an FSM in 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 that's occupying in multiple regions in different states. Then you create something called a weird machine on a massive yeah. topology. It won't work that way. Continue. Exactly. Right. And and again, we want to protect property rights, right? And mm -hmm. uh, like the decision of what to do can only be done once. Right? That's why it's exclusive. Um, so we need to have that even in advanced client-side validated state, which can be crazy, right? This can be whatever the fuck you want, right? Uh, you're no longer constricted by the Bitcoin consensus rules in what you do on your client-side state. Right? The only thing that you use the Bitcoin blockchain for is, first of all, to, so, to tell everyone that you are going to, to change the state in the future. Right? Hmm. You don't yet tell them how you change the state, but you tell them that you will. And you even commit to that you will only change the state once. And the way that you do that is that you commit, like, uh, you... Uh, you commit to a certain UTXO in the Bitcoin blockchain, right? Any coin that you have. And you basically say that when this coin gets spent, I will reveal to you the new state update, right? So because a Bitcoin UTXO can only be spent once, this means that you cannot double spend a state update, right? Because once it's spent, it's spent, right? And even further, everyone can verify that this UTXO got spent, right? And you cannot tell two different stories to two different people. 
same approach as if you would say tomorrow i'm going to post an advertisement in the new york times magazine right mm -hmm. uh, and it's going to say something right i'm i don't tell you yet what what i will say right but i will tell you where to look uh, for the publishing of that event and because i don't control the distribution of the new york times right i cannot selectively lie to you what i will put in the new york times will be read by everyone right so we have this single use seal like you say i will tell you something tomorrow like whenever that happens for example whenever that bitcoin coin gets spent right but, and because you tell that to everyone uh, you cannot selectively lie and this gives us double spending protection and single source of truth for our state machine right it does not do the calculation of the state machine it just makes sure that there's only one version of the current state right and this is this is what i'm saying rgb is so much like it takes the idea of lightning network to a whole other level right because you don't use the public network to manage your transactions you don't even use it to manage your state the only thing you use it for is the double spending time stamping protection of the time stamping server that is the time chain right um like rgb is Good even God. more than lightning such an such an honest way of looking at bitcoin it's just double spending protection and once you have double spending protection on a global state right then you can go on your own client-sided state and do crazy complex turing complete fucked up scripts right that don't even have to be necessarily private property contracts or it can be anything it can literally be anything it could be your blog post right so but you enforce that everyone sees the same truth right and that nobody's state gets double spent uh, implementable via taproot and schnorr uh it gets a lot easier with taproot and schnorr because you can use these uh the, the beautiful simplicity of the schnorr cryptography algorithm to do like public key tweaking signature tweaking you need a lot of that um, but it is even up and running right now on the Bitcoin mainnet. Um, so it works with ECDSA2 with some other crypto magic. Uh, but that's why I brought it up. There will be a drop in replacement for Taproot as soon as it's ready because it makes so much more things possible, so much more secure, and so much cheaper and more private. Okay. So I just look up RGB Bitcoin. And who, who are the main people behind that? I think it might be a. See if I can organize in a double with those guys. I mean, that, that would be quite interesting too. Do you know who they are? Yeah, Dr. Mark Sinarlovsky uh, is like the, the wizard developer uh, who has a crazy brilliant mind. Um, uh, so reach out to him. He's, he's probably the best guy to talk about more of the technical side. Um, mm. And he does a lot of the implementation in Rust, uh, which I think ah. you might be interested too. Um, yeah, so, uh, and, and the entire, like it builds on Rust Bitcoin and Rust Lightning. Uh, so there are you know, many great contributors to that space in general. Fascinating. You see, this is what I'm so happy I started up this this sort of podcast because it's it's been absolutely, you know, like every single interview have been like, you know, like a fire hose of information going down my throat. Um, and, you know, being able to edit it afterwards allows me to sort of like, you know, follow these little rat holes of information. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, all right. Let's. I think we can change the subject just a little bit. Um, lately, one of the sort of hyped topics at the moment um, is that Bitcoin is boiling the oceans. While it is true, because there is a startup that's actually using Bitcoin miners to boil the ocean to get salt, I believe. <laughs> um, let's go into the energy usage of Bitcoin. 
and and why 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 it's it's just it's well in, in my opinion it's just moot in in fact it's quite a positive thing i'd love to hear your your spiel on this well first of all how dare you be the one to tell me where i use my energy or not like you're the lazy bastard who just sits around watching cat videos on YouTube, right? not even realizing how much energy that fucking consumes. Right? So you fucking hypocrite, get out of my face, first of all. Right? First of all, let's start with principles. <laughs> can, 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 I just want to follow through with that. It's like, you know, the, the, the internet uses like, you know, what, how, much more, how much more energy than Bitcoin? And yet you're, you're using your fucking internet to tell me that information. Fuck you. <laughs> exactly, right? And then, you know, not just technology itself, but monetary technology specifically. I mean, yeah. who is here the, the, the eco killer, right? Using a credit card, right? That, that has to be maintained by this hundreds of thousands of monkeys sitting in this machine pressing buttons, right? Like the energy cost of that, just the, the amount of food that these bastards eat and the amount of farts that they release, just that CO2 emission is ridiculous, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... Like, what are we replacing here? We're replacing the entire central banking infrastructure. That, dis that deploys probably a million monkeys, right? That drive to work in their big Mercedes every single day. Like, that's, rid that's a ridiculous amount of energy waste, right? So let's be real. <laughs> oh, well, you know, <laughs> you didn't have to put it so succinctly. <laughs> Well, you know, and then, then finally, as the last point, like, you know, in Bitcoin, if you get if it, like cheap energy, you win, like you win big time, right? Yeah. Um, well, what is the cheapest energy? Well, energy that was wasted, right? Energy that you threw away before, right? Waste energy, stranded energy. Do you know, like, I mean, I have my big quarrels with the eco-fascist, like pushing all uh, all that, uh, like solar uh, investment in, in whole Europe, crazy, like very stupid. Um, but now that you have all this solar and all this renewable power, um, well, it's very sporadic, right? And you're going to be producing a shit ton of it when it's windy and sunny, and you're going to produce nothing on a clear sky night, right? So, well, bad luck on you, right? Uh, so how do you take out that excess energy and actually utilize it? I'm sure you could use batteries, which are incredibly bad for the environment, right? So, so much for renewability <laughs> um, or like some other like aqueducts or things. But of course, the other alternative is using Bitcoin mining, right? I mean, use uh, or just using the flared gas of, uh, you know, natural gas production, massive amounts of stranded energy that cannot be used. Like we have geothermal energy or hydro energy that's just running around, not being tapped into, like all of these places can be tapped into now that we have a profit incentive for having efficient and cheap and uh, like steady energy production and consumption. And this allows entrepreneurs to actually invest their capital into like unlocking this energy right, and actually using it. And they will end up unlocking much more than they could possibly use for Bitcoin mining because you're still restrained by hardware power, right? And you got to get all the computers, right? So that's the other restraint. So we will produce a lot more energy now, thanks to Bitcoin, than we otherwise would have. And that means because we have more energy, we can do more stuff, right? So everyone benefits. Uh, and the prices for electricity uh, will just go down like crazy thanks to the hyperabundant uh, creation of energy that is used by Bitcoin miners. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as we mentioned, like, you know, you said stranded uh, energy in the sense that, you know, the energy sources are all over this world. It's all over this. It's just not profitable for a miner to come into a place like Hong Kong and use 
Hong Kong electricity, which is heavily competed over, and you know the, the the price has gone up massively. It's just insane to do that. You would much rather go out to Shizuan, Shizuan, where where there's a like a mass a, a, a hydraulic dam, and the consumption of energy far uh, um, is, is is far outweighs doesn't outweigh the 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 production side of things. You know, it's just the production is so massive compared to consumption that it makes sense that for this energy to pr producer to get um, an energy uh, a user fr from a re remote environment to help cover the costs is just it's it's a blessing for them it's an absolute blessing for them but i think it's going to go a step further i think you know i was just chatting with with the you know nick's bitcoin dev I, th I think these miners are going to get like nuclear scientists and build nuclear reactors eventually. I Absolutely. Thorium-powered Bitcoin mining machines, like somewhere <laughs> underground uh, in like the depths of the ocean. Hell yeah. Like, is, like you're going to be at the depths of the ocean just to connect to the actual underground cables, right? Uh, so to get lower latency. Um, yeah, like you, you get all the cooling done, you have an infinite amount of energy that is very stable, very clean, uh, like no, ex no uh, CO2 emissions or nothing. Like, yeah, we're going to mine Bitcoin with a bunch of nuclear power. Deal with it. <laughs> Well, I wasn't. I was going to say. I was going to suggest that now that now that you've got like a nuclear reactor, why not set up a little town around it? Because I, well, nuclear exactly. nuclear reactors are a hell of a lot more safer than they were back from, um, um, you know, Chernobyl days and and whatnot. Like the 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 emissions or the nuclear waste is actually gets burnt off in these new modern reactors. It's clean energy. It's absolutely clean energy, and it doesn't have any of the like really negative stuff, uh, um, uh, health uh, side effects as what coal does. You know, it's one kilogram of of nuclear fuel e equals about a million kilograms of coal. You know, your stance is is is, is rather you know hypocritical for those for those people that are busy bitching about um, Bitcoin being an energy waste. It's it's. Yeah, you remember we started off the conversation. We're talking about these groups of people who are, uh, you know, they, they, ha they have very conflicting. They don't even have a, a fundamental, uh, a logical uh, mindset and approach to like assess their own fundamental axioms. They're all conflicting. Yeah, it's the same group of people that are doing this. So I think they yeah. can be healthily ignored. Yeah, and I mean, you know, check out that that series on Netflix, uh, Chernobyl, right? That actually shows that a lot of the problems yeah. of nuclear science back in the day was because it was a statist, closed source crap, right? This was all proprietary technology where information was withheld, even from the people uh -huh. operating the damn machines, right? Just just to cover up a mistake that the glorious Soviet Empire did, right? Um, Absolutely ludicrous. No, Bitcoin will, will free that knowledge about nuclear energy. We will see a plethora of free software entrepreneurs uh, collaborating with each other to find more secure, more efficient, um, and less wasteful uh, ways of harnessing this incredible power source. Yeah, free individuals are going to deal with it, uh, are going to do it. Again, deal with it. You're not going to stop us because we're going to mine Bitcoin with that shit. And with that, we're going to hire an army of a militia right, to, to, get, to keep you out of our citadels. You especially. <laughs> I don't like you. <laughs> oh, geez. I don't know. You should be in Texas, man. With that sort of mentality, you should be in Texas. <laughs> or maybe you are. 
Now, okay, you've mentioned a few things. Like I, I listened to a couple of your talks, and you and and you would go into like you know, for example, I believe that you that you're almost entirely, as much as you can, you've moved into Bitcoin, and you just have enough money, the bare minimum, to sort of like you know get by, bare minimum of fiat to get by on your daily living. So, so how did you go through the transition? Now I'm getting a lot more people that are, are communicating with me saying, oh, Stuart, like, you know, tell me about this Bitcoin thing. How do we do this? So maybe now's an opportunity because I'm going to timestamp this particular conversation at this point and then send it to, 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 to the people that are, are, are relevant that are asking this information. How does one go about as, as a newbie into Bitcoin? Um, what's the, the fundamental stuff? What's the biggest mistakes? Um, how does one approach this new lifestyle? And yeah, the transition that you made from a fiat user into a Bitcoin holder. I'd love to hear this process. So, Yeah. So, so first of all, I think to start out with, like why even do this, right? Why, why are you even questioning to get paid in fiat shit? Right. Um, and I think it's just an understanding that I, I want to be respected and valued by the people I do business with. Right. If, if I provide a service or a good for someone else, like, I want to be rewarded, right? I worked hard to get that done and to actually solve the problem. So I, I very much do want to be respected and like shown a gratitude for the work that I did. I don't want to be rewarded. Um, now, if I do that in the fiat shitcoin, right? Like someone is just going to give me this, this paper token, right? Or this debt certificate that is inflating at an unheard extent where they're just printing trillions and trillions more uh, constantly, right? At a hyperinflation rate. Well, like, why is that useful for me? Like, tomorrow it's going to be like five percent less of the total money supply. Like, that's that doesn't like that that doesn't work for me. I I want to get something where the other person actually sacrifices. Because I mean, to be honest, like the the shit, these fiat shit coins are dropping in value so fast that of course everyone wants to get rid of them. Nobody wants to hold them, right? So there's no respect if you pay someone in fiat. Because obviously you wanted to get rid of it, right? Anything was better than to hold on to that shit, right? Um, so I like if someone does business with me, I want to get that respect of getting paid in actual money, right? Where you actually have to sacrifice something that shows me that you actually like that I was actually useful, right? That my service was even better than the sacrifice that you made of just paying me in satoshis, right? Um, so that's that's the one aspect, but it also goes on the other side. Like if I work with someone. I want to show them that I respect them, right? And that I value what they've done for me and that they've actually helped me out here, right? And I do that not again by insulting them and throwing shit in their face, right? But by giving them the most precious resource in cyberspace. Like that will foster so much motivation, so much loyalty and so much gratitude in those entrepreneurs that I work with. Well, because I respect them and I actually give them something of meaning, right? And not just some hyperinflating shit that nobody wants anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I believe I believe you mentioned like um, uh, that you charge in Bitcoin, and somebody in the audience said, "Well, you know, Bitcoin goes up so much in value." Like, uh, not that you know. Let's excuse that that he didn't realize that it's actually the fiat shit coins that are dropping in value so quick. Um, and and you said, "Yeah, no, it 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 makes it it makes sense to to charge in Bitcoin because you can say to them, you can say, well, you know." Today's been, you know, this this month has been a good a good month for Bitcoin. I can give you a discount, and it puts you in a more 
advantage um, a position of power to negotiate so this you know like when i heard that i was like oh that's an interesting perspective on things so i mean there's a whole th bunch of thought process and experience that has gone into this this transition of this mindset and i want to know your story of like how did you sort of come to these conclusions and and now where are you at i mean yeah, I mean, you know, any entrepreneur has always struggled to discover the prices, right? to actually discover the value that he's contributing and to charge, you know, just a little less than that so that others will actually still, you know, buy him up on the opportunity. So that price discovery is always very tricky, right? It's it's based on the subjective values of your clients and you're not going to predict them, right? Bad luck. Um, so it's a lot of uncertainty in that regard. Um, but so this means in general, you want to reduce that uncertainty, right? You want to find better out how, how like how much you charge. And of course, price is a supply and demand, right? Supply of money, demand for your good. So what is the supply of money, right? This is a very important question to ask yourself as an entrepreneur because you cannot predict the demand, right? That's just an impossible guess, right? Uh, but you can look at the money supply, right? And you can actually run the figures. And that gives you at least certainty in one part, right? Uh, of this equation. Now, let's look at the money supply of the fiat shitcoin. They're printing and printing and printing. Like money printer go brrr, nonstop ridiculous right so what do you have to do if the supply of something increases this means right that the price got to increase uh, uh, sorry that the price got to decrease too um and this means that you will have to charge more money for the same service so this puts you first of all in the incredibly bad situation that you have to somehow predict now how the money supply will change based on the whim of individuals and again you cannot predict individual action Right? So you don't know how much the central bankers are printing. First of all, they're not going to tell you. And even if they did, there's so many nuances in it that you wouldn't understand. Right? It wouldn't be meaningful for you. So, um, But you know that you will somewhere eventually have to increase it, right? your prices, because the shitcoin is getting worth less and less. Um, so first of all, you don't know when to increase it. You don't know by how much to increase it, right? Uh, just because there's so much subjectivity in, in this field, right? so many individual human choices. You can't predict that. Right? Very difficult. Um, uh, but you still have to change it, right? And now this is you're in this horrible negotiating position where you keep earning less and less and less for the services that you provide. So either you reduce the quality and the cost of your services, right, so that you're still profitable, shrinkflation, right? You just sell smaller food or like smaller packages, um, <laughs> or you increase your prices, right? Both of them suck. One degrades the quality of your product. The other makes your customers unhappy because they got the same thing for less money yesterday. So why increase it? Right? So in general, it's a shitty situation. Um, while on the Bitcoin side, it's just, again, so fundamentally different. The demand for my good and service still out in the open. Still no clue. Individuals have individual valuations. I don't know. Right? I can't look into their mind. But I know 21 million Bitcoin. Why? Because that's what I say. That's what my full node defines and verifies. Right? I, I can prove that because I do it, right? It's, it's, it's my responsibility, actually. So I know there are 21 million Bitcoin out there, right? And now it's the question, how much uh, do I actually want to get paid for my services? Well, one Bitcoin, one out of 21 million Bitcoin, that's, that's quite a lot, actually. That's a damn large proportion of the money supply. Yeah, okay, maybe I'm going to do that job, right? Maybe I'm going to work and spend my time. Because hey, one Bitcoin is 100 million sats after all, right? Um, so this will mean that you actually have one solid in your entrepreneurial allocation of capital resources, right? And that is what percentage of the money supply. And just the fact that you can ask that question and not just answer it, but verify it, right? 
is mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. And that puts you in such a much stronger position, first of all, to actually do resource allocation, right? because now you know one out of 21 million, super valuable information. And second, as one out of 21 million will become wor worth more and more and more, right? as more people want to get their hands on this precious cyberspace money, right? this means actually, if your contract is denominated and your prices are denominated in Bitcoin, that for the same amount of Bitcoin, right, you receive something that's more valuable from your customers, right? So you provide the same good and service, but you get the same price uh, or like the same nominal price, but more value. So again, two things that you can do, either improve your quality and your, the, of the product, right? Make it better. Right? Isn't that much better than to try to make it worse, right? So you actually try to fix the problem and provide a better service. So to keep up with the value increase of Bitcoin, Right, very difficult yeah. to to, yeah. entrepreneur to beat the value of Bitcoin, but still you can try at least, right? And the second thing is, of course, decrease your prices, right? But again, as you said, that's such a much more superior argumentational positioning to say, hey, I love you. Like you're an awesome customer. I want to keep doing business with you. I am going to extend a hand and give you a 20% cut uh, on, on everything, right? Like all of a sudden the customer is going to love you. Right, because they get the same thing for cheaper, uh, but maybe even something better. Right, because you could do both. You could improve the quality of the service, and you could decrease the prices. Like you're gonna be a rock star in that local community uh, because you've, you're just the most awesomest guy providing the most valuable service for the for now even less satoshis. Isn't it wonderful how you just managed to like flip it on its head and just like say those wonderful? It, it feels it's such a good feel good factor about what you just said there. Gosh, talking about what you're charging for, and I believe you have some sort of a course on uh, on on your website. What was it? Something something Liberty? Um, maybe oh, now's your chance to sort of plug your services <laughs> and tell us about what you do. Yeah, so towardsliberty.com has been for a long time like in uh, basically my public note page where I put a bunch of book references and sources for mm -hmm. all things praxeology, natural law, philosophy of like occult knowledge in general that I wanted to share um, while uh, and, and recently I just um, like I'm, I'm in the process of rebuilding it uh, in a sense that it is it, it still will like retain that part of content sharing right where we're just I give you some information and you can accumulate it right uh, that's an important part right that's how you start learning right but the thing is passive accumulation of knowledge is far from wisdom right you actually have to think and understand what you're listening to, right? And then even more so, you have to act upon it, right? And you have to apply the things that you understand to be true in your everyday life. It's so important to be logically consistent with your thoughts, emotions, and actions. I cannot overstate this enough. If you, if you have a discrepancy here, if there are some logical flaws, you're not gonna have a happy life, I believe. Um, so, you know, getting that, that, that right mindset, um, is, is so critical and again, to actually act, right? So this is, as you said earlier, just this aspect that you started a podcast that you sat together with other individuals and created that content, actually thought about a, diff a difficult problem, actually find out the question that you need to ask, right? So to discover the path to the solution of the problem, right? This is something that forces you to act. Right? Because all of a sudden I'm here sitting to you and now I have expectations that you ask me a smart question. Right? Now you have to think <laughs> about sorry. the question. I, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I failed. 
<laughs> no, actually, you're doing a damn good job. That that shows you like your natural skill at it, right? But so that aspect of asking a good question is already so difficult, right? And when you just listen to someone, you're not asking questions, right? So, yeah. first of all, being a podcaster allows you to answer to ask questions and then to hear the answers from others and then even follow up with that, right? So it's as soon as you again get that new information from someone else, that input to the trivium process, super important, right? But again, if you would just sit there and listen, it would go left ear in and right ear out, right? But if you have to be prepared to ask the next question, right? Yeah. Or to even further answer the question after the other person did it, right? Um, yeah. That will keep you on your toes. So yeah, yeah. this aspect of creating the content in a tribe of individuals who are actually on a quest of seeking knowledge and seeking to understand these topics, um, like, for me personally, the Socratic seminar and the Socratic method uh, is perfect for this. I do, it was it was used to teach, of course, from Socrates, like ancient philosophy and morals. Uh, it was used in at least in my praxeological education with things like the Mises Kreis, which was a Socratic seminar to talk about economics, and it's very much used in Bitcoin. There are multiple Socratic seminars uh, happening all over the place um, at somewhat of a, a looser time schedule, um, uh, both in meat space and in cyberspace. Very much encourage you to check them out. Um, but towards liberty now is this is this place where I want to gather a tribe to have a damn good conversation every day, basically, right? To get people who are actually curious about the questions and are eager enough and courageous enough to be in that uncomfortable situation of finding the answer to a difficult question, right? And mm -hmm. to share in that process and to give each other new ideas and to help each other in the understanding of these. And so this is basically the gist of what I want to do at Towards Liberty. Okay, so you look you're, you're looking to set up some sort of like a a, a little network of people, um, um, and it, it might be a little kernel, just getting the pe people together, and then sort of see what sort of how it evolves, how how this tribe, um, create what whatever the tribe creates essentially, but. Of course, f fundamentally grounded in this in this understanding of you know that using Bitcoin as this route, um, yeah. Okay, how's it going so far? Uh, I, I think quite well. I mean, I've been doing these Socratic seminars and this type of well education and consulting, basically, in a sense, uh, for a long time, even like before this rebranding of Towards Liberty. Um, hmm. But now it's just you know getting to be much more streamlined. Still a work in progress. Uh, because, well, I use a bunch of free software tools in on the server uh, only. And, uh, you know, the roadmap of these are always difficult to predict. Um, <laughs> so what do I run there? It's uh, a Bitcoin full node, of course, a Lightning Network node, together with yes. a BTC Pay server. Right? So you can easily uh, and only pay me in Bitcoin. Right? No other fucking way. Right? Either Bitcoin on-chain or Lightning Network. No fiat, no shitcoin accepted. Never. Will not happen. So don't even wait for it. <laughs> like, you respect me and you give me real money. I don't want that shit of yours. Right? So uh, find some other waste disposal company. It's not me. Um, <laughs> so, um, And then for the actual collaboration, uh, I'm looking into Nextcloud, uh, which is really, really interesting. Right? Um, for collaborative file sharing, Right. so I want to improve that archive. Right? I, I already have uh, you know a copy of the previous information in uh, in towards liberty uh, in this next cloud and I want to uh, like further you know advance it and keep it up to date especially with collaborative file editing right so during these Socratic seminars it would be great if we had one shared notepad right where anyone can articulate what we're just speaking about in a written form that helps a wow. lot of people actually to to think right because again writing forces you to act you cannot write without thinking 
right? So this helps a lot in the process of understanding. Um, and therefore, I want to kind of see how that works out if we have this collaborative file editing document. Um, and there is this chat group in Nextcloud Talk, right? So also hosted on, on the server. Um, where we just have ongoing conversations with whomever is is in this chat group, um, plus then a weekly scheduled call uh, for this Socratic type seminar. Um, and there are four courses uh, or four types of seminars. Like the first is about Bitcoin. You know, huge rabbit hole deserves its own weekly conversation for sure, probably more. <laughs> then uh, the second uh, is entrepreneurship, right? Praxeology, how to think like an entrepreneur. Right? Because I, that's so, so, so valuable. Right? Like, especially praxeology in Austrian economics is not this blabbering science. It's incredibly to the ground, rooted in individual action. And I benefit from having this mindset literally every single day. Right? It's just, uh, it's, it's a virus that has caught in my brain to think like an economist. Um, it can be annoying at sometimes, but I still think it's super useful. Um, and then another one is on liberation strategies and right? so how to become a sovereign individual that goes a bit more into the philosophy of you know the second realm of, of cypherpunks and crypto anarchists of vanuism right and nomadism uh and security culture in general right how to how to build a mindset that makes you unfuckwithable basically um and ultimately a course on operational security right so how to protect your property in cyberspace right how to make sure that nobody fucks with you <laughs> again um and this includes you know things about how to do backup basics of encryption how to run the cubes operating system or hunix or maybe even NixOS one day once i get to actually using it um but these are like the four courses, Bitcoin, praxeology, liberation strategies, and operational security. Interesting. So does it work on a, on a uh, membership dues kind of basis? Yes, exactly. This is where I want to experiment a bit with. Um, and this is something that where I had a lot of struggle because, you know, information is non-scarce. There is no exclusivity, right? Anyone can have it because anyone can just share it. So no property rights required and therefore also no trade required. Right? If Bob can just give the idea to Alice, well, Bob didn't lose the idea. So Alice, like, he hasn't sacrificed, so he doesn't really want anything in return. Right? That's kind of the thing. Um, doesn't, doesn't mean that Alice cannot give him a return. It's just that it's not required as the solution to the potential conflict. Right? Because there is no conflict, so we don't need property rights and prices to solve the conflict. Right? Um, still, you can give a gift, of course. Um, but um, again, like as I said before, just sharing the content, I think, is not enough. Like, yeah. you really need to focus that time on understanding it. And that is a scarce resource. That is your time in yeah. understanding very complex and nuanced things, right? Sure, you can just read everything about it and passively try to accumulate it. Yes, it's a strategy. But again, to act and to speak up and to share your point of view with others while others share their point of view with you, right, is an incredibly useful thing. Um, that, I, again, I, th I think emerges that, um, that uh, conflict again, right? Either you're part of the conversation or you're not, right? And conversations are different if you speak to one individual or to 10 or to 100, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, it's very, very different. So I am very happy to keep this at a small tribe of like, five, eight, 10 people uh, who show up regular and who actually care, right? That's what I care yeah. about, uh, that people are actually motivated to come on there and to seriously learn. Um, and out of all these reasons, like, first of all, it's my time that I have to invest to actually show up daily, 
right? It's my Bitcoin that I have to invest in, in donating to the free software contributors whose software I'm using. Right? Right. <laughs> and ultimately, I want to get more Bitcoin, right? So, so far, I'm just wasting my time and spending all my Bitcoin. So I'm not going to do it, right? I, I want something in exchange, basically, because I do have opportunity costs, right? I could do, be doing something else. Um, and I'm kind of experimenting with different ways to actually monetize, um, you know, this form of education. And I'm not sure if I found it yet, but I think that purchase to be part in a live interactive conversation is something that is still true to the free software ethos uh, and where I think is a promising future to explore more and to see if we can you know, further collaborate together profitably uh, so that everyone wins. Yeah, I think it works. I think that might work. I mean, I, I get the feeling that you definitely have well, this the terminology of like, archetype. You definitely do have that teacher archetype. Do you know what I mean? when you were at university, did you ever consider becoming some sort of a professor or something? Um, I mean, my time at the university was extremely uh, confused, right? Because by that time, I was already a, a hardcore anarchist and very much into yeah. free software, right? <laughs> and then you just sit in class and you have this Marxist teacher rambling up a front on how we have to enforce equality for everyone and how child labor is the most evil thing and that she would rather see a child starve than to see him work, right? And me is like, I love child labor. Like, I've been working as a child since forever. And you bitch want to deny me my liberty to be productive? Get out of here. <laughs> so the university was, in many aspects, very, very pointless. I mean, know thy enemy is, is interesting, right? So, yeah, that, that was very useful. Um, but, but still, like, uh, I did not learn my my enthusiasm for seeking for knowledge that did not come from university far from okay. it that came from me being an entrepreneur and trying to fix problems and not knowing how right and then trying to find solutions that that that's was where that curiosity to explore uh, came in and then you know also with the understanding of economics is that i am actually contributing to bitcoin free software projects like i remember downloading hidden wallet back in the days when it was still the early prototype of wasabi right and I, I booted up. Well, first of all, Tor was broken, right? So I made a feature request. I hey, fixed it. I can't use it. Uh, second, it was in white mode. Ugh, right? Disgusting. So my, my, <laughs> that, that was actually my first feature request. Like, make it dark mode, you, you idiot. My eyes are bleeding. Um, then Wasabi 1.0 came actually out in dark mode. So I'm very happy about that. Uh, I saved so many lives from from eye bleeding uh, by by toxic white mode. So I'm very proud of that one. <laughs> um, but but yeah. So then I saw like in this CoinJoin tab, which is a collaborative Bitcoin transaction two out of five peers registered, right? So I'm like, well, screw it. Is there really only one person other than me that uses the software? Like, that's ridiculous. Especially in the sense of privacy where I depend on the size of the crowd, right? If I'm the only one using this tool, it's not private at all, right? So again, based just out of that, well, somewhat selfish or at, at least starting from individual principles, right? That I want to get privacy for myself. Right? This means I need to have other people who take their privacy seriously too. And that's the similar aspect of the division of labor. Like, If I want my problem solved, then it is in my best interest to help others solve their problems because then their capital grows, uh, they have more time available to spend on other things, and they have more capital to help me out. Right? So in this capitalist worldview, where we start from the individual, right? the individual is incentivized to still collaborate with others, simply because a rising tide raises all boats, right? So mm -hmm. with that mindset, I was like, yeah, I have to educate people about the challenges of Bitcoin privacy that we currently have them, 
and how some wallet like Wasabi actually strives to fix them, right? And how users can actually use Wasabi to make a meaningful improvement in their privacy, right? So this is why I did a bunch of interviews uh, and how-to videos on how to use Wasabi, or then maintained the documentation, uh, written documentation on, on you know a bunch of stuff, and do a lot of these podcasts now, right? To to share my knowledge with my peers, right? So that I can raise my peers to be more productive, right? And to help out because to be frank, like we're struggling so much to solve all these problems. We cannot get enough manpower and brain power involved in fixing them. So get your ass out of the couch, right? <laughs> become active <laughs> because there's like a burden of work to do and I cannot do it all by myself. And so that's kind of my, my mindset of why I want to share what I've come to understand, right? Also with that aspect that if my understanding is wrong, right, and I speak up about my wrong understanding to others, hopefully they are going to tell me that I'm full of shit right? and that yeah. I have logical flaws. I hope so, at least, if they're like honest and, and uh, meaningful. Um, but, you know, the, uh, again, as an individualist, my analysis always starts from, from me, basically. That might sound selfish at first, but I actually think it has quite gratuitous uh, consequences if applied consistently and in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you actually, so you you started becoming more, you t started taking more on this public persona, um, purely purely to 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 and why and why you also associated yourself with the Wasabi wallet um, is because you want to have privacy yourself. So you want to have like more more people to incre increase the anonym anonymity set, um, essentially. Is that correct? Yeah, right. And that's this is, again, that's the free software ethos of scratch your own yeah. itch, right? Yeah. You got yeah. a problem, fix it. Yeah. That's yeah. how free software developers do their resource allocation, right? Yeah. You don't just work on meaningless things that don't solve any problems for anyone. No, like you find out what sucks and then you fix that thing, right? And f like with many free software projects, this applies to not just the code, right? The, the let's say, marketing or education of users is essential, right? And I realized that this is broken. And it actually degrades my quality of the software experience, right? So if I want to be productive, if I actually want to help out and make the project yeah. more beautiful, more meaningful, well, I got to educate people, right? That was the yeah. itch that I had the power to scratch. So, so as, a, as a programmer myself, I must say that uh, an individual like you becoming an int interested in uh, like, a, like, like an open source project like Wasabi or something, and then sort of like trying to, you know, taking on the burden of being a, a representative or you know an advocate it's immensely valuable it's immensely valuable <laughs> in some ways in some ways that's the reason why one of the reasons why i started this podcast because eventually you know this this internet protocol that i'm working on it's the privacy privacy preserving internet protocol i i, I kind of i'd like to i'd like to use this podcast eventually to be able to uh, to to get other people increase awareness of this protocol because i mean it's a networking protocol it only works when other people use it so in a sense i have to i have to step out from you know like you know the programmer computer and 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 start to take on a, a public persona or this this sort of platform and so far i must i must say it it's been such a a beneficial thing i i you know even if i wasn't a programmer i think i would enjoy doing this it, it's great yeah no I, th I think it's a very valuable exercise for everyone right again because it forces you to think and right? it, it forces yeah. you to interact with others uh, and you know to it, it's challenging it's uncomfortable 
Right? But in that situation, you actually thrive, right? And you yeah. fix the difficult problems. But still, right, it's about, again, division of labor. And where are you marginally best at? Right? What is the one thing that you can do that makes the most impact? You can do a lot of things. Most of them are useless. But one of them is, is really, really big, really important, right? Mm -hmm. And division of labor teaches that focus on that one thing that you are marginally best at. Doesn't matter if you're the best one in the entire world to do it. It just matters if this is the, the one skill that you're better at than anything else. Right? Yeah. And probably in your case, that's coding, right? Uh, like, I mean, like very, like you're very skilled with it. And this is one of the very big impact things that you can do. Um, now, maybe there are other coders out there that are even better than you, right? Sure, but at, at least you're a better coder than you are, for example, a public speaker, marginally. I'm not saying you're a bad public speaker. I'm just saying Shit. it's, it's <laughs> right? Um, and then the thing is, if you find someone else who is a marginally better public speaker than he is a coder, right? I'm the extreme case of that. Coding skills, near zero, right? Public speaking skills, yeah, I mean, probably still quite bad, but it's at least better than I'm a coder, right? So this is kind of how Adam Fiskor and I teamed up, right? He was, I mean, he's a great public speaker too, but he's just a rock star developer. Like any second that that guy does not spend on writing amazing, difficult, complex software is like a wasted second, right? So I want him to focus as much as he can into solving this gigantic pile of problems that we have in Wasabi, right? And him to not worry about doing the public, like the publicity, and to like answer naive user questions, right? And to go through right. all the feature requests by users and find out which ones are most requested, and like things yeah. like this, right? Someone like I, like I can provide almost near zero important impact in in the code, but I can do exactly that. I can do it quite well, right? And that means that all the time that I invest here, Adam does not have to take away from writing code, and right? mm. uh, so. That's why division of labor makes sense. And that's why a, a, to have a team working on the free software project that is not just not only coders, right? But that where there are other people doing support, doing documentation, doing design, doing the management, the organization, like all of this is, it's a very, very complex work. And we got to get contributors on all fronts. Yeah. I, I take it, I, I take it you, you guys know each other in Meetspace. Uh, yes, we we do. Uh, we have met each other a couple times on conferences, of course, and okay. um, also on uh, like both. Actually, Wasabi team makes vacations uh, together uh, on in some exotic locations like Lisbon or Taiwan, um, and there we always get together for like a month or so and just hack uh, and do stuff. Uh, there's an office in Budapest of the CK Snacks company, uh, which is a, ah. a private company that focuses on using and developing Wasabi software. Um, and uh, so there's the office in Budapest, which is lively with a bunch of developers now. Um, so what's yeah, it's, how, it's, how, how's the how, how's the monetary situation regarding Wasabi? I mean, are, are the programmers all do they all have salaries? Um, is it all is it all like uh, you're scratching your own itch kind of thing? What what's how does who started who started Wasabi and how's it ongoing? Uh, so I, again, Wasabi started with Hidden Wallet by Adam Fiskor, and then got yeah. contributors like Lucas Antivero or uh, Dan Velmsley. Right? Um, but back then, there was no company; it was just MIT licensed free software. Uh, but the beautiful thing of the software is that you can run it and make money, and right? you can earn money by running this CoinJoin coordinator. Simply because, well, it's a scarce service, right? Either a user is part of the CoinJoin or he is not. Right? And there can only be a limited number of inputs and outputs in a coin join. And so there is an exclusivity and a potential conflict. 
And so there again emerges the trade of scarce resources and therefore mm -hmm. a price for it, right? Running a contract coordinator is one of the most beautiful business models in Bitcoin. And I think we just see that with the tremendous success of CK Snacks. Um, because even though they've provided the uh, uh, probably one of the most high quality coin join experiences for the cheapest fees um, is uh, and, and still being profitable right? and generating positive cash flow, I think since the second or third month uh, that the Wasabi wallet was officially announced, um, like really, really crazy. And uh, again, anyone can run this free software. MIT license, right? But Adam Fiskor, as he announced Wasabi, he also created the so-called CK Snacks company. So um, CK Snacks, your knowledge, uh, you know, proofs and stuff. Uh, and mm -hmm. the goal of the company is to provide snacks, software services, right? That where it can operate while having zero knowledge about its customers, right? That's the entire goal of the company. Become a zero knowledge internet and Bitcoin service provider. Uh, with the first thing that we're working on being that coin join being a coordinator of collaborative Bitcoin transaction so that we have no idea with whom we're doing business, right? Uh, completely anonymous against us, right? That's why you only talk to Tor identities, right? And that's why you, we use heavy cryptography like heat verified anonymous credentials in the new Wabi Sabi coin join so that the coordinator has literally zero knowledge about nothing, right? Um, and this company simply runs the free software that is being contributed on by a bunch of individuals. The vast majority of people working on Wasabi started out as just being voluntary contributors to an awesome free software project. I was very much one of them. Right? I started contributing because it was awesome, not because I got paid. Right? And yeah. but eventually, because there was this genius way of this of the of the person who actually runs the coordinator code, if he is successful, actually earn quite a lot of money. Um, like because he becomes a, the, a network effect. He becomes a heavy node in the network. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. This is the job. This is exactly the model that I wanted to, uh, to build up on with my with my with my networking protocol. And I'm glad. I'm very happy to hear that that it is a success case. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the so the the business of the coordinator is to get a large amount of users online at the same time, and for them to be ready to coordinate a collaborative Bitcoin coin joint transaction. Right. That is it. CK Snacks is a marketing company. It's a marketing company to get the right people together, right? That's it. It's I not see. a software development company. It uses software as its prime marketing tool, right? Yeah. Because if you use Wasabi Wallet, if you download it from GitHub, it comes prepackaged with a direct communication channel, basically to the CK Snacks coordinator, right? And Wasabi even is somewhat designed to be like a, this, this marketing tool to convince you that the service of CK Snacks is valuable, right? So this is, for example, if you open Wasabi and you send Bitcoin in there, you see a red shield showing you anonymity set one, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very easy thing that we do in the software to put the user basically in a state of uneasiness to make them recognize, hey, you have a problem, right? Like these Bitcoin are not private. The person who sent them knows exactly for how long you hold them and to which address you spent them, right? That sucks. And we actually make the user aware of this, of course, with the intent that we're providing a solution. Right? So there's the coin join tab where he can click. And after a successful coin join, he gets a fresh coin. The coin with the red shield is gone. And he gets a coin with a green shield. Like, great success. The problem is solved. Right? So this is basically a, a marketing tool to convince people to get together ready, being ready for coin join. Right? And uh, the nice thing is you can, with even different approaches, like you can write your own Wasabi client right? 
and still talk to the CKSNAX coordinator as long as you speak the same protocol, right? It's it's not tied to the Wasabi software itself. It Hang just about. happens There's that CKSNAX uses Wasabi. There's a protocol? Uh, yes. So currently we use the so-called zero link fungibility framework, uh, which was authored in, I think, 2016 by Adam Fiskor and others. Um, and came from an old idea from Gregory Maxwell of 2013 of doing. Dude, you've got me. You've got me thoroughly interested now. I, I need to know everything about this now, <laughs> because I mean, I mean, I'm looking at creating similar sort of infrastructure, and it would be great if there's a protocol. That means I'm able to I'm able to write an implementation, which uh, which is actually able to on the base layer is actually able to get this uh you know this coin join uh privacy anonymity stuff going on and then on the second layer i can do the the lightning um over my protocol using tap tap root and whatnot so being because i'm a snob <clears throat> an absolute snob i like using my own software thank you very much <laughs> so I, I don't think i would be happy with the with the c sharp and 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 <clears throat> all of that yeah. Um, now th so th there is the zero link protocol that basically defines how to do these Chaumian blind signature coin joins. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the gist of it is we have three rounds, input registration, output registration, and signing phase. Right? And each user speaks to the coordinator in each of these rounds. Right? And there's back and forth communication. Um, so let's first explain how zero link works and then later how we fix a lot of the things with Wabi Sabi. Um, so in the input registration, if uh, your client, Alice, takes all of the inputs that you want to coin join, let's say you have three coins that you want to coin join, right? and Alice provides a signature proof that she actually owns these coins. Right? Um, and uh, this signature proof gets sent to the coordinator. Right? So the coordinator can verify that one user, Alice, has these three coins, and she is actually able to spend them, right? and he knows the total sum of these coins. Let's say it's 0 0.15 Bitcoin, right? Um, and uh, in uh, as an answer to this message, he sends Alice, um, or, or sorry, Alice further uh, creates outputs, right? Output addresses, just another public key from her wallet, right? And um, she takes one that she actually blinds with Schnorr blind signatures or Charmian blind signatures. Um, and this blinded output address now get sent to the coordinator together with her three input coins, right? Um, so, and then the coordinator checks, are all the input proof valid? And are all these inputs in total worth more than 0 0.1 Bitcoin, right? If yes, he signs off uh, with a Charmian blind signature on this blinded output address, saying that he has verified that there's one user who has at least 0 0.1 Bitcoin, right? Uh, and therefore is not stealing from anyone. Right. So, um, plus Alice provides one clear text address for her change. Right. So, because she put 1.5 Bitcoin into the coin join, she only gets 0.1 Bitcoin out in this blinded output. She will also get 0.4, right, 0.5 minus fees in a change output. Uh, now, the coordinator can actually see the clear text inputs with the clear text change output. So, he can trivially link the three inputs paid for this one change output. But because we use Char Charmian blind signatures in the actual equal standard amount of 0.1, right, he does not actually know which address he was signing here. Um, and this now concludes 
the input registration phase, right? Uh, and we move on to the next phase. So after every user was an input registration, then we go to output registration, where Alice will unblind the assigned blinded output that the coordinator previously verified the inputs for and signed it. Right? And with the magic of Schnorr signatures, we get the clear text address with the signature of the coordinator. Right? And now Bob, a different Tor identity, right? not tied to Alice's Tor identity, communicates to the uh, coordinating server again and provides this output, this unblinded but signed output address. Now the coordinator sees his own signature right, and therefore knows that, okay, at a previous time, I verified the inputs, I made sure that there were no double spends, right, and that this user is not cheating. And I apparently agreed to that, right? So I take this output now, this output address, and give it 0.1 Bitcoin in the final coin join transaction, right? So we have all, uh, and at this stage, we have all the users have provided their inputs and their change output in input registration, and they provided their blinded output in uh, output registration, right? Now the coordinator, if all users have participated up until this point, he has all the inputs and all the outputs of all users, and having verified that no user is spending more money than he put in, right? And this gives us the final coin join, which is then actually sent back to Alice in the signature round, where now Alice signs the inputs of this large final coin join transaction only after she verified that she's not going to lose money, right? So she, she checks, are my inputs there? Are my outputs there? Do I pay the right amount of fees? If yes, great. Here are my three signatures on these three inputs that I provided. And those signatures go back to the server, who then puts all the signatures from all the 100 users together into the final coin join transaction. And if that round succeeds as well, if all users provide their signatures, then we have a final and a valid and a signed coin join transaction that can be broadcast to the Bitcoin network and that will confirm. And what we've achieved is that no user lost any money and the users lose only very little information against the coordinator. And how, how long does a round take? Because this is a lot of consensus. That's a lot of messaging for one round. That's a shit ton of messaging. Yeah, and now you do that in parallel with three different Tor identities, right? Uh, yes. It's a pain in the ass, right? It's a pain in the ass for a very long time. Um, like in 2018, we were stuck at anonymity set 12, right? We could not get over 12 peers coming together simply because as soon as we hit like 13 or 15, users were dropping out because Tor broke, right? And if you drop out either in output registration or in signature registration, we have a denial of service attack, right? Um, and all of a sudden, nobody gets to make a coin join because you got to go offline, right? So denial of service is a bit of a challenge in coin joins. Um, and yeah, the way that we solved that was just to improve Tor. We rewrote the Tor client completely, I think, <laughs> um, and like made it more performant in a way that we can now reliably get 100 users to coordinate, again, with three different Tor identities. That's 300 Ooh. Tor identities talking in parallel to the same uh, Onion address. It's crazy, right? But uh, So we have timeouts. Um, like the input registration has a timeout of one hour. So you have one hour time to register inputs. And if, so after one hour, we're going to go further and this round ends, right? But if 100 users get together, right, uh, then we will go even after 30 minutes. So as soon as either 100 users get together or one hour, we will end input registration and move on to output registration. I think output registration has a timeout of like three minutes or four minutes, right? 
just because latency and Tor fuck-ups and way too many problems. <laughs> um, and then we have the signing phase, which is, I think, another two minutes or so or three minutes. Um, ah, okay. But, but, you know, it's not just the, how long does the round take, but how often does the round fail? And quite a lot, quite a lot. Um, like, especially when some people were still running old clients that didn't have the Tor optimizations, mm -hmm. it failed often like five, 10, 15 times before actually all users stuck around. And um, so that's for sure a challenge. Okay, so so would it be Adam's node or 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 ZK Snacks's node which actually submits the final transaction into the network? Uh, yes, that's the way that it's implemented. Uh, it just because it's easier, right? The node just gossips. So uh, because no user has the final coin join transaction. Right. Um, so look, I mean, it's it's a centralized service. I mean, it, it when it's centralized, there's uh, um, ideologues they tend to look at uh, like centralized, decentralized, and like ah, oh, yeah, everything has to be decentralized. No, there are many problems that can be sufficiently solved in a centralized setting, uh, as long as there's a foundational sort of like a decentralized setting. So in this in this situation, there's a lot of consensus that's happening. Um, and yeah, I think it, I think it's okay to do that. I think it's okay to do that. You release a yeah. little bit of information. Um, yes, like we looked into uh, decentralized coin join algorithms, like Coin Shuffle, Coin Shuffle Plus Plus, genius, but so much more complex. So many more round trips, and again, doing all this over Tor is just increase or decrease the reliability. Like. I doubt that it will be possible any time near soon to get a hundred users together in a decentralized coin join. Like that's just com like coordination complexity exponential, right? So we decided that no, let's stick with centralized coordinated coin joins, um, but let's improve it in a way that the coordinator cannot steal and cannot spy, right? If the only attack vector from the coordinator is to go offline, right? That's good enough because anyone can run a coordinator, so another one will just pop up, right? But yes. Um, and zero link tr almost got that right. Like for example, the coordinator cannot link your blinded output to your inputs, right? This is where the zero link comes in. The coordinator cannot see that these three outputs got exactly yes. this 0 0.1 coin, right? Because yes. there are hundreds 0 0.1 coin and all of them were blinded. So the anonymity set is all users. Um, mm. But yeah, but I mean, I mean, I could, I could, I could have a, uh, yeah, I could. You know, it might not be 0 0.1. It could be 0 0.13573218. Exactly. Uh, uh, but but uh, two things here. We have one is the communication and coordination itself. Can the coordinator, just by being part of the conversation, link your coins? Right? And that is, with Jomian blind signatures, not possible. But it's only not possible that he cannot spy if every user has exactly the same amount. Right? Because we, we just do a, a naive blind signature over some challenge text, there's no amount. So in the round parameters, it must say that this private key only signs from the coordinator for exactly 0 0.10158938. Right? It has to be the exact same value. Right? Um, and this is, for example, something that we improved with Wabi Sabi. Because in Wabi Sabi, we use key verified anonymous credential together with Pedersen commitments right, to achieve the unlinkability on a coordination communication level even if the user has completely arbitrary amounts, 
right? We do the the um, double spending protection with Patterson commitments, or uh, like the the overspending, like that you put in more, uh, that you take out more money than you put in, right? We verify that with Patterson commitments, which are much more flexible, right? And therefore, we can handle any arbitrary amount, right? Just on the communication layer. The other thing that you bring up is the amount correlation on the blockchain level. Right? What if there are 99 users that have 0.1 Bitcoin input and 0.1 Bitcoin output, and then there's you, like the, the lucky whale, who has 100 Bitcoin input and 100 Bitcoin output. Right? Very obvious to see which input belongs to which output, at least for that large value. Right? So just because you have amount, uh, that you have unlinkability in the coordination of the coin join, does not mean that, you're, that you also have unlinkability on the actual blockchain. For this, we have to consider amount decomposition and this is something that we also improved drastically with Wabi Sabi. Good God, Wabi Sabi is a, uh, it's, it's, it, this rat hole is going deeper and deeper. Is there some sort of white paper that just goes into all of this that I can uh, read up and look at? Or is this like just arcane cypherpunks? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it is very arcane cypherpunkish for sure. Um, uh, we are not using new cryptography. The cryptography that we use is peer-reviewed in the 2019 paper about the Signal uh, messaging protocol. Uh, this is where they explain the key verified anonymous credentials, which is used in the Signal client for group oh, communication. That's the ratcheting system. Uh, and uh, it's it's not the ratcheting. It's something specifically used uh, like for group messages that you can... Uh, I forget how exactly, but I think that you can prove that someone is part of a group without actually oh. knowing which person it is and which group he's being part of. So okay, we, okay. Um, actually, Jonas Nick, uh, the Nick's Bitcoin wizard, he gave us that tip to look into this paper and it solved all the problems that we needed to solve. So we are massive debt to that guy. He's been, first of all, he discovered a uh, Schnorr's signature address reuse bug uh, in our implementation back in the days. Um, and now he provided us with the crypto magic for, uh, for Wabi Sabi. Like he is a awesome, awesome contributor to the project. Even though he just drops in like every now and then and like like spits us like a little piece of knowledge that is just so mind-bogglingly that takes but us like, like a year to like implement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, like wizard, absolute wizard, crazy. Um, uh, so, but yeah, yeah there, I mean, there is a paper. So uh, we have we have adapted the signal, or we've, we're taking just a small subset of that signal paper cryptography, and we make it a bit dumber. And we use it just in the explicit case of CoinJoin. And so there is a Wabi Sabi paper that we've published for peer review in some cryptographic journal. Um, uh, and it's an ePrint right now and in serious peer review, hopefully soon. Um, we, we did get some light peer review already from like people like Jonas Nick and, and other uh, Z-Man, like cryptography wizards and Bitcoin. Um, but it's not yet officially published. Um, it, but it's on GitHub. GitHub.com slash CKSnacks slash Wabi Sabi. Uh, that has all the latest, uh, and we're working on the code implementation. So in the CK Snack slash Wallet Wasabi repository, the backend is almost entirely implemented. Um, we are now starting to implement the client. Um, uh, like the crypto magic is already implemented, so it's now more about the coordination protocol. Sorry, uh, sorry, the backend, the backend, the backend of the coordinator, coordinating backend server. Ah, the one guy who wait. puts everything. Ah, uh, okay. So, 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 yeah. Um, Nick's Bitcoin mentioned that. There was a previous uh, uh, round coordinator that was that he thought was you know relatively shit, and the one you just described to me is the new implementation and is not created yet. Is that correct? 
and, and also the one that I provided earlier, uh, like the detailed explanation with every round, that was about zero link. And here the downside is that, for example, the coordinator knows that Alice submitted just three uh, in inputs, yes. right? Because Alice needs to provide the total sum of money that she puts in, yes. right? Because we don't have any Patterson commitments and range proofs, right? Ah. But now that we have Patterson commitments and range proofs, we can have three different Alice's, right? The talk with ah. three independent Tor identities to the coordinator, each providing just its own unique input. Okay. And even though they are not like, um, and then you get a Patterson commitment signed by that key verified anonymous crypto magic of the coordinator okay. that you can later unblind to prove that you can somehow, uh, that you have put in like 1.5 Bitcoin in total. Mm -hmm. And you can consolidate, meaning that you can put multiple inputs into the coin join and not even the coordinator knows that each of these inputs belong to you. And you can decompose, so you can create multiple outputs, and none of them is linked to each other. So there's no output to output linkage, and right. there's also no input to output linkage, right? So no input input, no input output, no output output linkage. That's the true zero link coin join protocol. Okay, okay, okay. I see. And and all right, zero link. This is the the protocol behind the <laughs> Wabi Sabi. No, that's not. No, no, sorry. Zero link was uh, that was confusing to say. Zero link was that uh, Charmian blind signature coin join. Gotcha. That okay, was gotcha. explained by Gregory Maxwell in 2013. Okay, that, and everything was based on that initial idea, and now it's Charmian being iterated blind on. Yeah, Charmian exactly. blind blind including this yep. Patterson. No, no, not including Patterson. Not these Charmian blind Patterson. signatures are just for standard amounts, right? So with these, if you use these Charmian blind signatures, every okay. user must get the exact same amount. Otherwise, the coordination protocol breaks down. Right? <sighs> Otherwise, you cannot prove double spends. What I we see. figured out with Wabi Sabi is how we can use Patterson commitments and these range proofs. So to find out that nobody's cheating without mm. actually clustering all the coins of one user. Okay, okay. Yes, that was a that was a bit of a chunk to to chew off there. <laughs> yes, it is. And <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, I mean, w w this this is going to require uh, downtime for me to actually go into it and read up about it. And because I mean, I installed it. On, I installed Wabi Sabi Wallet Wallet on my machine, and I fired it up, and I was like, oh, just a wallet. But I didn't know it goes that much deeper. You guys don't support hardware wallets, though. Uh, no, we do. Uh, one of the nice things that we added during the Wasabi 1.0 process, um, version. At, at first, uh, we uh, we did not just want to install all the drivers of all the hardware wallets out there, right? yeah. pain in the ass to do on cross-platform, yeah. so we didn't. But then I noticed the HWI project by Andrew Chow, whom I mentioned earlier, the hardware wallet interface, which is a standalone project maintained by Bitcoin Core, but not packaged inside Bitcoin Core. That it's a Python software that takes all of the drivers of all of the commonly used hardware wallets and kind of puts them together. So Wasabi, exactly. Wasabi packages the HWI binary to talk to every hardware wallet, every useful hardware wallet out there. Um, so okay, yeah. so that, that we, means my next implementation, uh, the, the version I'm running is probably an old one, and then I should update it. No, we, we use we use HWI for like almost one and a half, two years now, so it's ah, that's an old okay. thing. Because I remember clicking on the, on, on the interface and it said hardware wallets not supported. That means, uh, anyway, I'll look into that. I'll oh, I into that. Uh, wait, I think, aha, uh -huh, you looked at the CoinJoin tab, right? You connected your hardware wallet and you clicked on the CoinJoin tab. And that is one of the things that Zero Link cannot do. Zero Link mm -hmm. cannot sign CoinJoins on the hardware wallet. Uh, 
not by principle, just by the way we've implemented it, because there was some new research done on how to make CoinJoin signing of a hardware wallet secure. It was not secure before, you could lose money. But now with these non-ownership proofs, uh, a hardware wallet can securely sign a CoinJoin without having the risk of losing money. Uh, and we will implement this type of ownership proof natively into the Wabi Sabi. Actually, the code is done, it's merged in master. So um, hopefully uh, we will have coin joins with keys on the hardware wallet rather soon. Fantastic. What Very an interesting much. project. <laughs> what an amazing Holy project. Shit, yeah. <laughs> Dude. Should we, should we sort of wrap up now? Do we have any sort of like final, final things that you want to sort of go into? How can people contact you? Yeah, so for sure, reach out to me. All my contact details are PGP signed and open timestamp on towardsliberty.com slash contact. Uh, uh, by the way, that's one of the things that both Nix Bitcoin Def and I use all the time is the Euratum protocol. I'm genius. Right? You can prove a time window in which something has happened. Fucking genius. Super simple. Take a markdown no, no, no. file. Go into that. Go into that. Go into that. Sorry. So what is this? It's, it's, it's easy. Take a markdown file. Write any contract that you want. Hello world. Yeah. I sell my house to you. Like whatever the fuck you want, right? Mm -hmm. Add into this the most recent Bitcoin block hash. Yeah. This is proof of existence. Meaning yeah. that this message must have existed after the Bitcoin block was found. Because it's impossible to predict the Bitcoin block itself. And everyone knows the most recent Bitcoin block, right? So you have the, the minimum time side. This, pro, this, this thing has existed after the block, right? Now make a PGP signature of this contract, right? This proves your identity. If you have a well-established web of trust, it proves consent, right? Because you're the only one knowing the private key and that you've read the message, right? And, and willingness to actually sign that message. So you make a public claim that this identity agrees to this message and it has happened after this time. Right, because the Bitcoin block hash is included in the signature. And now take the signature and put it into an open timestamp onto the Bitcoin blockchain. Like open timestamp is a way to put information onto a Bitcoin block very efficiently, basically with a Merkle tree. So you have um, uh, your one leaf in a huge Merkle tree where the root of the Merkle tree gets put with an op return on the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, and now you can prove the, uh, uh, the, the existence that um, the uh, the that this thing has existed before this block, right? Um, you know that the message must have existed before that block because it is in the block, right? It is referenced to verifiably in that block, right? Mm. So now we have proof of absence. It must have happened after the block of the block hash that is in the contract, and we have proof of existence. It must have happened before, right? That block was created because it's in the block, and all of a sudden we have. You know, the time window of when something happened, we have the identity with the PGP web of trust, and we have to consent that that person read and signed the message with the signature. This is everything that a notary service does. Yep. Free, censorship resistant, gratis for everyone. Mind-bogglingly awesome, and I use it a lot. For what purposes, though? Well, you know, so go to towardsliberty.com slash contact, and here okay. you will see a document that I signed with my PGP key back in 2019, right? And um, now I can say this to you, and you can verify this, right? You know that this is this is what's standing there. It was created somewhere in like a one-day time window in 2019 March or so. Um, and this means that nobody else like could have faked that copy and afterwards change it, right? You know that there's no man-in-the-middle attack who just you know wrote you a wrong contact thing 
and yeah. just shows it to you now. Okay. Because okay. I have proof that I wrote it two years ago. Mm -hmm. God, so many bloody gold gold nuggets in this particular podcast. This is this interview. It's been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate this, Max. And next time. Uh, after the pandemic, I, I wanted, I'm thinking of going on a bit of a world tour because I, I really love traveling and I want to go to all sorts of different parts of the world. And I might come around your neck of the woods and we can have an in-person podcast again. That'd be, that be really be fantastic. good. Very much. <laughs> we yes. can go have those beers. Yeah, finally. <laughs> yeah. Loved talking to you, mate. Loved talking to you. And then um, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you very much for the invite. I mean, you, uh, if you, I heard a couple of your shows and you've, you've really got it down. Like, this is very meaningful content. Uh, so I'm happy to be on and to be part of it. Right? And, and I hope the listeners got some value from this too. Um, yeah, let's, let's keep it up. I'm happy uh, to come back and talk some more. I'm, I'm always eager for a good conversation. That's the main reason why I do TowardsLiberty.com, because I cannot get enough of good conversations. <laughs> Excellent, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks.